It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Let's talk a bit about the average Civil War soldier. The average soldier in this war was 5 feet 7 inches tall and weighed 135 pounds. Although, of course, average being what it is, there were soldiers far outside of those parameters. For example, the shortest soldier we have on record was a 40-inch tall Ohioan, and the tallest was a 6-foot-11 Indianan. The average age was somewhere in the early 20s, though some who served in this war were as young as 9, 10, or 11 years old. 18 was supposed to be the minimum age for being in the infantry and, you know, not just being a drummer boy or musician or something like that. But in fact, in practice, plenty who were below 18 years of age served in the infantries of both sides. Then there were also men in the ranks much, much older, including some in their 60s, and even a very small number older than that that we know of. The average soldier was unmarried and some sort of Protestant in religious faith. Most soldiers in both armies were basically farm boys, and they were known for being very individualistic and oftentimes hard to mold into obedient, docile soldiers. In fact, James Robertson writes, quote, They were independent and individualistic, which tended to make them better at fighting than at soldiering, end quote. This average soldier had a 1 out of 65 chance of dying in combat and a 1 out of 10 chance of being wounded in combat. He had a 1 in 13 chance of dying of disease. In addition, 1 out of 13 Civil War veterans would end up being amputees by the time the war was over. Most soldiers in both armies were at least somewhat literate although their spelling and their grammar was not always pristine. Unusual by our standards, their letters home were not at all monitored or censored, which means that their letters to friends and loved ones back home, as well as the diaries and journals of those who kept them, provided a fascinating and revealing window into their perceptions and their experiences. The picture we get from first-hand accounts of Civil War soldiers and from other records that record things like disease and hardship and conditions is a really ugly, gritty, brutal, unromantic picture. Back in the 17th century, Thomas Hobbes had famously justified this state's existence by saying that without it, life was solitary, brutish, and short. But if you look at the lives of most of the soldiers who lived and served in the Civil War, while their life might not have been solitary, it certainly was nasty and brutish for most, and for hundreds of thousands of them it was short. The mid-19th century was, of course, a very, very different world from the one that most of us live in today. Unless you live in a very poor part of the world and you're a very, very poor person in a very poor part of the world. 
Even people we consider below the poverty level, though, in first world, rarely live as rustic and dirty of a life as the average person lived in the mid-19th century. Standards of hygiene, cleanliness, and comfort level in general were much, much lower in that period than we would ever accept today. And of course, as many of you may know, medicine was not exactly very effective in many cases. That said, even by the standards of that time period, even by the not-great standards compared to what we're used to of mid-19th century America, what Civil War soldiers had to endure in terms of filth, discomfort, uncleanliness, suffering, and all the nasty things like rampant diseases and bodily infestation of pests that accompany these things is just mind-blowing to the modern-day resident of a first-world country. And all the terrible things caused by discomfort and uncleanliness and illness are before we even get to the battlefield, just as the armies are out in the field moving around. Of course, once we get to the battlefield, we have something that could almost be out of a horror movie in terms of men being ripped to shreds and dismembered in all sorts of disgusting ways, and those who are wounded but not killed immediately then having to face the horrors of the quote-unquote medicine that mostly to our eyes today are primitive, barbaric, and often even counterproductive. Those who survived past the horrors of a military hospital in the Civil War often had to live out the rest of their days physically crippled, psychologically crippled, or both. Many spent years, or even the remainder of their lives, dealing with powerful symptoms of what today we would call post-traumatic stress disorder. This episode is my humble attempt to try to share with you a glimpse into their world and their experience as best as I can get a handle on it and illuminate it. Everybody, CJ here, the one man revolution, guerrilla scholar, warrior, and of course, Renaissance man for this new and seemingly ever darkening dark age in which we find ourselves. Here to talk about another brief dark age as well. Back from an extended hurricane related absence, but one in which I actually spent a massive amount of time working on 
research and notes for this very podcast, episode 146, if I'm not mistaken, of the Dangerous History Podcast. Yes, my friends, after taking some detours on some other subjects over the past few months, I'm back with the next installment in the Not-So-Civil War series. This one is The Grunt's Eye Perspective, which is part eight in this series, not counting, of course, the bonus episodes I've made for my Patreon supporters. And I've done several that are connected to the Civil War over there, and also I have another one or two maybe in the works as well that are specifically connected to this subject. So in this episode, it's going to be, what was this horrific war like from the vantage point of the low and mid-level soldiers who served in it? But before we launch into this exploration, I have to thank a few awesome people for assisting me in carrying out my one-man revolution, keeping it going here at the DHP. So, Patreon shoutouts, big thanks to Justin, Aaron, and Randy for stepping up to support the show over at patreon.com slash profcj. Remember, if you do this at $5 per month or more, you have access to all the bonus episodes that I've done over there and all those yet to come as long as you stay signed up. And you also are eligible to join the Dangerous History Podcast Scholar Warriors private Facebook group as well. So please consider signing up if you're not already a Scholar Warrior supporter of this show. The more people I have helping to support the show, the more and higher quality episodes I can produce. Also, thanks to Jim, actually Jim Cunnigan, who's been a guest on this show before, for getting me the book Against the State, an Introduction to Anarchist Political Theory by Crispin Sartwell off of my DHP Amazon wish list. Thanks very much, Jim. Um, I've read, I think, the first couple chapters or so of this book so far since I received it, and it's very interesting, and I'm, I'm very much enjoying reading it. Also, I have one more announcement before I launch into the heart of the show, and that is I just wanted to mention, please don't try to post any more comments on my website on profcj.org for any of the episodes. I turned off comments on show post, um, show note episode post there a while ago. So I don't know, maybe the last 50, a hundred or so episodes, I forget exactly when I did it. Um, you shouldn't be able to post comments, but I wasn't able to figure out how to turn them off retroactively for the old episodes. But here's the thing. I'm not doing that anymore. So please don't try to post any more comments because they, they won't be posted. It's just something for various reasons I decided to not do anymore. So anyway, with all that said, here we go. Let's launch into greater detail in the Gruntsai perspective of the not-so-civil war.
Now, the first kind of nuts and bolts thing I want to mention is uniforms. Now, despite the images we have in our heads, Civil War uniforms often weren't really all that uniform. Colors and styles of uniforms and hats and other accessories were actually often quite diverse between different units. This was especially true at the earlier stages of the war. Remember that the majority of the units that fought in the American Civil War weren't like regular army units. They were basically state volunteer regiments. And so they often had kind of their own personality from one to the next, and some of them distinguished themselves with different styles of uniforms. Some units even wore relatively flamboyant outfits, such as, for example, there was a unit, I don't recall which one it was, it was um, from one of the Union states, that wore basically the same or very similar looking type of uniform to what French North African troops wore at the same time period. So if you Google that up, you know, 19th century French North African soldier or whatever, you'll probably get a look at this. It's very flamboyant and exotic looking. Uniforms were pretty much always made of wool, so kind of thick, coarse wool, which was durable and helped kept you helped keep you warm if it was cool out. And, you know, wool has some positive attributes as far as it stays warm even when it's wet, it kind of breathes a bit, you know, so that's all good. But remember, a lot of the time, these guys are marching around in the South and, you know, where it's hot for a good half of the year or more, and you're wearing this heavy wool uniform, often in a dark color. And the same uniform was worn year-round. It wasn't like in the summertime. They'd put on, you know, um, an Australian crocodile hunter getup of shorts and whatever. In addition to that, uniforms were rarely washed, both because of a lack of opportunity and soap to wash them, and also because of a desire to avoid shrinkage. There weren't that many size options frequently in uniforms, and if yours fit you, fit you correctly, the last thing you would want to do is shrink it a couple sizes by washing it too much. So as a result, as you would expect, pretty quickly, uniforms became very ragged and dirty, and most soldiers on both sides actually looked pretty damn ratty most of the time, though Union soldiers tended to get new uniforms a bit more often than did uh, Confederate soldiers. We have lots of reports of just, you know, the, the dirt and filth and you know, gallons of sweat absorbed and then evaporated through these uniforms, and how nasty-looking and smelling they frequently were. And guys would be marching around in these things for months on end without washing them. You don't have to be OCD to be grossed out by the thought of that. In general, uniforms tended to become more standardized as the war went on, with the exception that, of course, many in the Confederate Army had to use makeshift, makeshift uniforms, whatever was available, which would, of course, not always be standard. Now, footwear was a big deal. It's always a big deal to soldiers. It's always one of the things that they um, focus on, and with good reason, because if you're a foot soldier uh, walking around, marching around countless miles, footwear might actually be more important to you than almost any other piece of gear. Most of the soldiers in this war literally were foot soldiers, which at this time didn't just mean that they fought on foot, it also meant that all of their transportation was done by their own two feet as well. So it's not surprising that one of their biggest problems and complaints 
always was footwear, probably footwear and food, which we'll get to in a moment, were, were two of the biggest common gripes. And when they were complaining about footwear, it was either not having it at all in many cases, or having it, but having it be of terrible fit and or terrible quality. The standard U.S. Army shoe at the start of the war was a lightweight, low-cut, leather-soled shoe. It wasn't like a big, rugged boot like we think about soldiers being issued today. And these shoes would, at most, last only a couple of months in conditions of frequent marching long distances. Of course, under four years of heavy, heavy warfare, most soldiers ran through shoes like that pretty quickly and oftentimes had trouble finding replacements and had to kind of make do and MacGyver their way through some crappy makeshift shoes. Now, as in so many other things, materially, the Confederates were always much worse off in this regard. But even the Union soldiers, though they were way less likely to, to be barefoot, they frequently suffered in the footwear department. Typically, shoes for the military back then were made in just one standard size, and frequently they would be made in such a way as there was no left or right shoe, like all the shoes were just the same shape. And this was done, you know, to keep things cheap and interchangeable, easily to replace one shoe, regardless of whether it was the one on your left or your right foot. But as you might imagine, that meant that fit was terrible. And as the war ground on, Frequently, Confederates, if they had shoes, would be wearing things with flimsy soles made out of materials like cardboard that aren't even as durable as leather for marching around. People who had shoes rarely had ones that fit well, and as you might imagine, long marches down bumpy roads resulted in sore, blistered, and often disgustingly infected feet. We have stories of soldiers having to painfully peel their crappy shoes off of the putrid, infected, pus-filled flesh of their feet, and having to do this like at the end of every day's march, and then do it all again tomorrow. Now, as I've mentioned, Confederates often operated without any footwear at all. A Confederate general in the 1862 Peninsula Campaign in Virginia said that he had at least 4,000 men under his command who had no shoes at all. And imagine how much worse. That's early in the war. Imagine how much worse the situation is for Confederate soldiers, you know, two plus years down the road after that campaign. Supposedly, when Lee's army invaded Maryland in 1862, tens of thousands of his soldiers were actually barefoot. And of course, Part of why the Battle of Gettysburg happened where it did was that there were rumors of a stockpile of shoes there, which caused Lee's army to make a foray into the town. When campaigning in winter, Confederate soldiers would often leave bloody footprints in the white snow as they walked around. So there you are, marching perhaps 10 or 20 miles a day over, by our standards, really rough roads either with no shoes or with really bad shoes that don't fit right. You probably have all kinds of nasty blisters and, and uh, cuts and infections in your feet, and you're wearing this nasty wool uniform that hasn't been washed in months and months. And you're carrying 40, 50, 60 pounds of gear. Is anyone ready to sign up for this yet? Discipline varied from unit to unit, and a lot of it depended on the personality of the COs above one in the chain of command. 
But, you know, it was a military, so typically it was pretty damn strict. And many soldiers really chafed under the harsh military discipline. As I mentioned, a lot of them were kind of individualistic farm boys who were not used to be not used to being ordered around and punished and that sort of thing for stupid little minor deals. Many of the soldiers on both sides absolutely hated routine military tasks, things like drill, you know, marching around in formation and practicing stuff and whatever, and and things like latrine digging, which are really important from the standpoint of sanitation. And if you neglect these things, like literally people might die from getting sick. But it was hard to get these guys to do all that stupid, uh, well, seemingly stupid anyway, and in some cases actually stupid, mundane sorts of tasks. It was common for privates on both sides of the war to explicitly compare their experience, their situation with slavery, which really in some cases wasn't that much of an exaggeration considering how harsh and how degrading punishments were for soldiers for various infractions. In many ways, a lot of the punishments actually were similar to punishments used against slaves who were resisting their masters. Historian Michael C.C. Adams, author of the very, very excellent book, Living Hell, The Dark Side of the Civil War, writes, quote, Punishments included hanging by the thumbs, toes barely touching the ground, bucking and gagging, being trussed up like a turkey with a bit cutting the mouth, spread-eagling on a spare wheel mocking crucifixion, flogging, and branding. Severity of punishment often appeared disproportionate for minor infractions, end quote. In April of 1863, Union General Michael Corcoran killed a soldier who called him a, quote, goddamned Irish son of a bitch, end quote. Now, as you would imagine, officers that appeared to be particularly strict and draconian would provoke a lot of hatred on the part of the men under their command, and fragging, wherein... You kill your officer in kind of the chaos and heat of battle so that, you know, maybe you can get away with it and no one will realize what you did. Fragging was threatened by many soldiers against hated superiors, and in some cases seems likely to have probably happened. But how prevalent it was is not, it can never be known for an absolute certainty. And most historians don't seem to think it was a terribly common thing to actually be carried out. Now, some of what these draconian punishments were aimed against was um, to try to suppress vice. A lot of it was against typical military infractions like not saluting or showing proper deference to a superior, not obeying an order, falling asleep on picket duty, these sorts of things, not carrying out a task or not carrying out a task correctly that you're supposed to do. But a fair amount of it was often aimed at suppressing vices, and vices of all sorts were extremely common in both armies, despite efforts to stamp them out and the draconian punishments that were often dished out for many of them. Drinking was probably the most prevalent vice, a way for soldiers to self-medicate their physical and psychological suffering. Stories of soldiers somehow almost magically getting their hands on large amounts of alcohol, despite the best efforts of their superiors, are extremely common throughout the war. Of course, sometimes those superiors were themselves as much of boozers or even more so as the men they were supposed to be in charge of were. 
Gambling was another extremely common thing for soldiers to do with their spare time. And in addition, sexual promiscuity, especially with prostitutes, which often tended to congregate around wherever large armies were camped or campaigning. That was pretty common, and not surprisingly, this, of course, led to lots of venereal disease as well. So, like I said, very famously, crowds of prostitutes would kind of follow the large armies around as as they moved about the countryside. And whenever a large army was parked during the war, prostitutes would show up if they weren't there already. So, for example, during the war... Washington, D.C., which at the time was still a relatively modest-sized town, but which had large amounts of military forces parked in and around it for pretty much the entire war, Washington, D.C. had about 7,000 prostitutes working at 450 brothels during the war. A private from Michigan said in May of 1861, early in the war, quote, If the men pursue the enemy as vigorously as they do the horse, they will make very efficient soldiers. End quote. A soldier from Iowa who abstained from all these sorts of things said disapprovingly, quote, Whiskey and sexual vices carry more soldiers off than the bullet. End quote. Syphilis was very prevalent, and of course, things like vaccines and treatments for it back then were very ineffective at best. Medicines featuring mercury were a common treatment for VD, and there was a saying, A night with Venus, a lifetime with Mercury. Historian Michael Adams says that probably one in 12 Civil War soldiers got some sort of VD, and the Union Army, which kept better records of these sorts of things than the Confederates did, documented 73,000 cases of syphilis and over 100,000 cases of gonorrhea. So there was a lot of VD going around in the armies. Now, VD was... Not the majority of illness, actually the majority of illnesses um, causing soldiers to get sick and even die were other sorts of things, some of them quite uh, well-known and mundane. But we'll get to that more later on. I want to briefly mention conscription, drafting men into the army. From 1862 onward, desertion was a major issue in both armies, and combined with attrition due to death, illness, injury, etc., it made it very tough to keep the ranks filled. And this, of course, led to conscription, as I think in the episode I did earlier in this series, Crisis and Leviathans, I believe, is where I talked a bit about conscription. I just want to share with you, though, a couple of remarks Michael Adams makes, which uh, to me show that he kind of gets this stuff and gets how problematic it is. Michael Adams writes about conscription, quote, Inevitably, the contestants resorted to compulsion for putting and keeping men in the army, even though both sides claimed to be fighting for individual liberties, end quote. And a few pages later, he adds, quote, Conscription provides us with some of the most compelling vignettes of the modern state's machinery of compulsion in action, end quote. So he kind of gets it. And conscription also damaged morale, especially since the wealthy of both sides could avoid it in various ways, as I mentioned in that Crisis in Leviathan's episode. It really, I mean, no one's really thrilled to be drafted just in general, but when you're being drafted and you know that the rich guy down the road from you is able to get out of it somehow, it really just adds insult to injury. However, technically speaking, draftees were never even close 
to being a majority in either side's army. Though, to be fair, in part, this is because men who were liable to be drafted often volunteered first. And the reason they would do that was twofold. Number one, in part because volunteering would do well for their standing in society, you know, to to have gone and voluntarily gone to do your duty without being compelled to do so. It makes you seem like a better citizen and a more honorable man and all that stuff. And also part of the reason why people would rather volunteer than wait to be drafted was that if you volunteered, you would be put in units from your community with your friends and neighbors and relatives. Whereas if you were drafted, they would just kind of put you wherever they wanted to. According to Michael Adams, only around 20% of Confederate and only around 8% of Union soldiers were draftees, and at least part of the reason for the lower Union draftee statistic is their usage of African-American soldiers, many of whom continued to be eager to volunteer for the Union Army, even during some of the harshest phases of the war. Now, speaking of black soldiers in the Union Army, some black soldiers ended up in the Union Army through force or deception, but most, at least technically speaking, volunteered. And I say technically speaking because, of course, in some cases, it's kind of like the equivalent of a poverty draft. Now, don't get me wrong. We have evidence that a lot of black soldiers were eager to fight as what from they saw it, you know, fighting against their former masters. But it's also a matter of if you're a slave in the South – particularly in the last, you know, two years of the war, when things are getting really destructive and there's a lot of total war being deployed against people's homes and farms and against towns and things like that. And you're a black slave and the Union Army comes through and occupies your area and says, all right, you are hereby declared free via the Emancipation Proclamation. What are you going to do? You probably have no capital. You probably, in most cases, unless you were one of the relatively rare slaves, didn't have much in the way of education and skills. What are you going to do? And you're in an area that's occupied militarily and that, you know, a lot of the farms and resources are getting destroyed or confiscated. What are you going to do? Go start a lemonade stand? And so that's what I mean when I say a lot of the black soldiers, you know, they volunteered, but maybe not all of them were super eager, but what else were they going to do to kind of be able to earn a living? You know, at least in the army, you'll get fed and basic necessities It won't be comfortable. But if you've been a slave, you've probably gotten used to a certain amount of discomfort anyway. Of course, as many of you probably know, once they were in the Union Army, they frequently were given the most hazardous and or degrading tasks. In particular, they would often be given hard manual labor in the more tropical climates. So, for example, in his Vicksburg campaign, Ulysses Grant relied heavily on black labor for a lot of the nasty logistical details in the Mississippi Delta, you know, digging ditches and things like that. And he wrote of this, quote, I do not want the white men to do any work that can possibly be avoided during the hot months, end quote. A lot of times also blacks, whether they were technically in uniform or not, would be used as labor to do the dirty work of graveyard detail after a battle of rounding up all the bodies and digging a mass grave and all that, which was a job for obvious reasons not a lot of people were eager to volunteer for. Now, this type of thing was common in the Union Army to use blacks to do the hard work, particularly in the hottest climates. Of course, 
The flip side never happened. In other words, as Michael Adams puts it, quote, Logic would suggest that as black soldiers suffered a higher rate of pulmonary diseases, they would draw fewer fatigue details in cold, wet weather. But this did not happen. Unsurprisingly, while white deaths from disease versus wounds stood at a 2 to 1 ratio, for blacks it was 10 to 1, end quote. So they give him the harsh work details when it's hot, saying, oh, you guys are, you know, genetically, racially better equipped to handle the climate. But then when it's cold, they don't let him off the hook and say, all right, now it's time for the white guys to take on the burden. Despite the fact that Union officers frequently admitted that black soldiers in the Union Army tended to be less prone to things like insubordination and basic infractions than were white soldiers in the Army, blacks nonetheless were disciplined more frequently and more severely in the Union Army than whites were. They faced charges and executions for rape more frequently, and they also comprised 80% of the Union soldiers that were shot during the war for mutiny. And at least some of those black soldiers who were shot for mutiny, they were basically shot because they protested the pay disparity at the time. They were paid 30% less than white soldiers, $10 per month versus $13 per month for doing the same and sometimes even tougher jobs. And of course, black Union soldiers were much, much more likely to face terrible treatment from Confederates in battle and in the aftermath of battle. So Confederate soldiers frequently had a take-no-prisoners policy towards black soldiers and often extended that to their white commanding officers as well. So I think you're starting to get a sense of this is a nasty job that as bad as you may think, it would be to be a rank-and-file Civil War soldier, it's probably a lot worse. So what was it like as these armies were out on, on the march, out on, out on the field, out on campaign? Again, not even getting to battle yet, that comes later. Well, out on the field, out on the campaign trail, conditions were generally uh, just absolutely horrible, characterized by all manner of dirt and filth, insects, vermin, disease, and mostly bad and insufficient food, even for Union soldiers, but doubly or triply so for the Confederates. Constant shortages of water and an inability, no matter what you wanted to try, to keep yourself and your clothing and your implements clean. Many historians have compared the larger armies of the Civil War to basically moving cities, which makes a lot of sense considering that some of these armies had as many as 75 to even 100, 120,000 men, which means they were more people than most American cities at this time. Now, if you know anything about how horrific and gross conditions were, by our standards, even in major cities in the wealthier parts of the world in the 19th century, even in the cities of North America and Western Europe. Just how unsanitary these places were back then. Imagine how much worse it would be under the conditions of constantly being on the move in terms of solving all the problems of things like food and water and sanitation. Speaking of food, like I said before, other than footwear and foot-related issues, some of the most common complaints of soldiers were those having to do with food, mostly over its scarcity and or its terrible quality, and then sometimes as well as uh, not having sufficient opportunity to eat as much as they needed to. Confederate soldiers mostly had to subsist 
on coarse cornmeal and Union soldiers mostly subsisted on basically stale hard crackers, known as hardtack. Michael Adams says that often a slam from a rifle butt was the only way to break a piece of hardtack into smaller pieces, and that if it got damp, hardtack would become a breeding ground for worms and weevils and that sort of thing. Again, the Confederates always had things worse in the food situation, but even for Union soldiers, it was frequently terrible and certainly no picnic. Because of the frequent scarcity of food and opportunities to consume it, there are reports of men eating things like rats and frogs along the way as they marched, as well as scavenging for rations in the pockets of dead comrades and scavenging for bits of corn in the dirt left over by feeding of livestock. Any meat or fat would tend to go rancid in hot weather, so there wasn't a lot of that available. Imagine the shortage just of pure calories alone, let alone nutrition, when you're walking 10 or 20 miles a day carrying maybe 50 pounds and getting little in the way of food and what you're getting is mostly not that nutritious. Now, as I've kind of indicated, even when soldiers got some food, they often had no time to really eat much of it. So they would just kind of scarf a few bites down, try and, you know, choke it down as quick as you could with maybe some coffee that was scalding hot because you just brewed it and didn't, you know, give it time to cool off to where it won't burn your mouth off. Speaking of which, soldiers treasured coffee and they preferred it black and as strong as possible, but they often complained about not being given enough time to let it cool off just enough that, you know, it doesn't burn your mouth. Union troops had access much more frequently than the Confederates did to preserved foods, things like condensed milk and dried bricks of vegetables and that sort of thing. But the troops really don't seem to have liked most of these very much. The vegetables often came out as mush when they were you know, reconstituted with boiling water, and the seals on some of the preserved foods were actually made with lead, which may have led to lead poisoning among the troops who ate this food. And uh, lastly, one of the preserved foods they were often issued were dried legumes, which were, you know, not that bad when boiled. They were better than the preserved vegetables. But if you're eating a ton of legumes, you'll typically get extreme flatulence. And yes, we do have some written complaints in the historical record of soldiers complaining about being in a tent full of comrades who are busily farting their asses off. And it sounds funny until you're there. Food poisoning and variety of digestive ailments, and more on these in a moment, these were all extremely common. And in general, soldiers on both sides, but especially Confederates, were often prone to malnutrition due to deficiencies of vitamins and minerals in the food that they did get. So things like scurvy, for example, were very common. People really wanted to eat fresh produce when they can get it, but the problem was oftentimes they would grab and eat produce that was not ripe. So unripe produce caused a lot of gastrointestinal grief. Lee's invasion of Maryland in 1862, the one that culminated in the Battle of Antietam, may have failed in part 
because his army went into that area before the apples and corn were actually ripe. And as a result, his army is attempting to live off the land, but many of Lee's men were getting bad gastrointestinal problems, which certainly reduced the army's number of effectives, which is never a good thing, considering that on its best days, the Army of Northern Virginia was pretty much always significantly outnumbered. Michael Adams relates an interesting story that ties into this from the Battle of Antietam itself. Quote, A northern civilian who walked the Antietam field shortly after the battle said the rebel lines could be traced by the thickly strewn belt of green corn husks and cobs with a ribbon of dysenteric stools just behind. Malnutrition and diarrhea gravely impaired the efficiency of the armies, causing depression, lethargy, night blindness, muscular debility, neuralgia, and susceptibility to major diseases. End quote. Livestock animals, whether brought along as transportation or as food sources, often died of various causes as they moved along with the armies, and keeping Mules, horses, cattle, etc. fed and watered under these conditions of marching around in the field was a massive problem. More than a million horses died in this war, so as bad as it was to be a human in this war, it was actually slightly worse to be a horse. Water was also a problem. Soldiers always had a hard time accessing sufficient amounts of reasonably clean water for drinking, let alone for cleaning, cooking, watering livestock, and medical uses, you know, helping to clean wounds and such. Soldiers on campaign were often chronically dehydrated, and the often salty foods they were eating did not help matters much. Many men drank nasty water that they really shouldn't have drank just because no good water was available. And of course, bad water caused and contributed to all sorts of diseases. Sanitation was always a problem. Soap for washing one's body and clothing was always in short supply. And opportunities to wash were also in short supply. Soldiers' bodies and uniforms were often disgusting, again, even by the standards of back then, due to this lack of water, soap, and opportunities to wash. And perhaps counterintuitively, officers were often the dirtiest of all, and the reason for that was because of taboos about them bathing and washing with their men. They would prefer to have a separate little spot to do so, and the thing was, when they couldn't find it, they would just stay disgusting and wallow in their filth. Officers and men on campaign in the field might go weeks or even months without washing themselves and or their clothing. And because of all this filth, we are told that soldiers basically smelled constantly like a combination of sweat, feces, and urine. Now, it didn't help matters that soldiers were often lazy or ignorant regarding basic sanitation practices. So again, think of this idea of a moving city, right? You have tens of thousands of men who would often be, for example, pissing or shitting in the same creek from which they're also getting their drinking water. Pests and vermin were a problem as well. Lice, fleas, ticks, chiggers, and mites were all over soldiers' bodies and clothing pretty frequently, if not chronically. Mites often spread scabies, which was referred to as camp itch by the soldiers. Treatments for this were salves and ointments that seemed to be mostly not very helpful. Close quarters conditions meant it was basically impossible to ever eradicate these infestations. 
armies in the field were also accompanied by swarms of flies and mosquitoes, which were of course attracted to all the refuse and feces of the men and all their livestock. Now, the fact that many of the men at any given time had bad diarrhea only made this all much worse. We have plenty of stories of flies swarming into soldiers' food and beverages at mealtime as well. The physical and mental effects of all this chronic filth and discomfort were not good. Michael Adams writes, quote, To be coated with dirt and insects degraded the soldiers' spirits, inducing low morale and despondency that, if unchecked, could disempower the victims and even end in death, end quote. Of course... Much more common than the STDs I mentioned before were other forms of disease and illness. And the common figure is that Civil War soldiers were two times as likely to die of sickness during the war than of battlefield wounds. In fact, at any given time during the war, between 20 and 50 percent of most units would be out of action due to some form of illness. Definitely the most common illness was diarrhea. Not a lot of military glory in that one, but it was common, often associated with dysentery, though it could also be a symptom of many other illnesses and problems as well, including the eating of bad food. The most common medicine given at the time to treat diarrhea was a mixture of opium and castor oil that doesn't seem to have been very helpful in most cases. Procedures designed to separate human waste from eating, drinking, sleeping, and living were at this time crude and were not always well followed. So poor food, poor water, poor sanitation meant that at any given time, a majority of men in a regiment out on campaign would likely be dealing with one form or another of gastrointestinal illness. And again, with this many men suffering from the runs, imagine how they and just kind of the areas around their camps would have smelled. Sickness among soldiers, inevitable, of course, given the conditions they were living in and their state of cleanliness and hygiene and the state of medical knowledge at the time, all this was made worse because the doctors who did the medical exams of new recruits, guys just joining the army, those doctors would often pass men who for one reason or another, should have been medically exempted, should have been, you know, disqualified from military service. So as a result, a fair number of men with pre-existing conditions and problems were actually passed through in order to just fill the ranks. But then, of course, men with pre-existing problems would be even more disproportionately likely to fall to sickness once out, you know, in the field with the army. The lack of real accurate understanding about most diseases combined with soldiers' behaviors made the whole thing even worse than it otherwise would have been. Michael Adams writes, quote, By 1861, the Democratic People's Army still often refused to be told where to defecate and when to wash. Even the well-bred sloughed off, adopting the laxness of a hunting trip. Billets remained unclean. Private Rice C. Bull of the 123rd New York found the soldiers' rest in D.C., quote, the most filthy place I was ever in, and crawling with vermin and rats which scampered in all directions, end quote. Of course, there was huge overcrowding everywhere, including in hospitals, where often wounded and sick men would share beds, if they had any beds available at all. 
Obviously, this does not at all help your likelihood to avoid illness or your odds of beating it if you do in fact get something. Oftentimes, men from rural backgrounds actually did worse in regard to illness than men from cities because men from cities had already been exposed to more diseases that were associated with crowded conditions. So things that were sort of common childhood diseases in cities, such as chickenpox and mumps and measles, these afflicted a lot of Civil War soldiers and again, disproportionately rural farm boys who hadn't yet been exposed to these things in childhood. And of course, notoriously, army doctors in this war often reused implements and spread diseases like crazy that way. Of course, doctors and nurses themselves often got ill due to lack of proper sanitation practices. Confederate doctors had the further problem of always having a shortage of medicines. Now, to be fair, a lot of the medicines of the time period either did no good or even did harm. That said, there were a few medicines that they actually knew that really did work, and, you know, to be short on those is not going to help your your case. Typhoid fever caused tens of thousands of deaths. Not until near the end of the war did better sanitation practices start to get this under control. Malaria was one of those few major diseases for which there was an effective treatment at that time, namely in the form of quinine, though this came to be in very short supply to the Confederates over the course of the war. And I mentioned this in my Patreon bonus episode about the blockade and running of the blockade, that that was one of those prized things to smuggle through the blockade if you could. During the war, there was a medical condition identified by doctors that afflicted many men, and it was called nostalgia, and it was often associated with symptoms of dysentery and things like that. And what Civil War doctors meant when they referred to a man as suffering from nostalgia was, according to Michael Adams, as follows, quote, Nostalgia, a psychosomatic sickness, progresses in a circular fashion. If a patient had chronic diarrhea... The resultant weakening of constitutional hardiness would induce despondency, with chronic homesickness adding to the spiral of declining strength and energy. Or, the patient might begin by experiencing emotional pining. If there showed no improvement, this could deepen into depression and passivity, opening depleted constitutional resources to attack by disease." Physicians saw the disease mostly in youths who often had been the most naively enthusiastic about enlisting for adventure and who had neither the mental nor physical maturity to cope with adversity and disappointment, end quote. By the way, perhaps not surprisingly, this kind of condition, this combination of sickness and mindset known as nostalgia was a common cause of men going AWOL from the ranks. While a relatively small number of doctors spoke and wrote about adopting a treatment that sort of combined methods to improve the gastrointestinal tract with things designed to make the person simply feel better psychologically, things like being kind and cleaning them up and giving them better conditions, some doctors did see this as a way to help people, but most doctors, and most commanding officers too, for that matter, during the war, didn't feel that way at all about men suffering from this condition. And they saw men suffering from this more as just being people of low character, who really just needed some harsh discipline to fix that. But getting sick and suffering and dying of some illness 
rather than going down in a blaze of glory in battle. It really was a depressing thing, the thought of this, to a lot of these eager young volunteers, because, you know, obviously they're willing to risk their lives, but in their minds, it's a far less noble and heroic death to go down literally shitting yourself to death, as opposed to, you know, charging an enemy position and leading your men on or something like that. Michael Adams writes of this problem, quote, Nothing romantic could be found in death and disabling by disease and exposure. Bacteria robbed many boys of gallant dreams as they wasted away in faraway places. They died for country, but without a red badge of courage, end quote. Other diseases commonly accompanying the armies in the field were things like salmonella, E. coli, tetanus, anthrax, yellow fever, colds, flu, pneumonia, all the usual stuff. And of course, men suffered from heat stroke in the summer and from cold and or wet conditions during other times of the year. And frequently, they had little in the way of enough blankets and enough just in general protection from rain and snow when they were out in the field on campaign. In the further north parts of the south, kind of the upper south, the armies actually would often, though not always, go to winter quarters, basically, as they had um, back during the American Revolution in places like Valley Forge, where the armies would just sort of park somewhere and hunker down for the winter. And when this happened, they, at least in most cases, were able to build some kind of makeshift shelters, you know, out of uh, some scavenged lumber and things like this. And as rudimentary as these things often were, they were miles ahead of the simple tents and things soldiers normally used when out on campaign in terms of keeping you protected from the elements and all that. Older officers, including generals, often had particularly problematic uh, pre-existing medical problems that only made matters worse when they went out into the field in all these disgusting and germ-ridden conditions and exposed themselves to the elements and all this sort of thing. We even know of generals suffering profusely from hemorrhoids while commanding armies, including General George Stoneman and General George Pickett, and probably many others suffered from this who, you know, there's no record of it because it's not the kind of thing people normally talk about much. But can you just imagine if you had hemorrhoid issues and your job involves sitting on the saddle of a horse for a good chunk of the day? Robert E. Lee is a guy we know suffered particularly bad from all kinds of medical issues while he was commanding the Army of Northern Virginia, including diarrhea, malaria, arthritis, and heart disease. In fact, during several points over the course of the war, Lee was actually being transported around in, in an ambulance wagon. And one, I think, can't help but wonder if Lee might not have performed better in, say, the Battle of Gettysburg, if not for all the health issues that were flaring up for him at the time that we now know about. Also, there were other times in the war where it seems like his health problems flaring up coincided with him not doing very well and missing opportunities on the battlefield. And the war itself really ground Lee's health down badly, and no doubt was a big part of why he died at the age of only 63 in 1870, just five years after the war had ended. Now, if they were suffering enough and wanted to get out, officers at least could actually resign their commission and go home. So, I mean, theoretically, Lee could have resigned, for sure. 
And while he didn't, because he had uh, a very powerful sense of duty and all this sort of thing, um, there were other officers, not as commonly generals, although occasionally it did happen, but um, there were other officers who, if for one reason or another they were just breaking down physically or mentally, they would resign their commission. And sometimes they came back to the ranks and sometimes they did not. But of course, enlisted men had no such option, even in the case of people who were really suffering pretty badly. Now again, add into all this, all the filth, all the disease that I've been talking about, add in the brutal marches, sometimes as many as 20 miles or so a day, and on bad roads, wearing bad or no footwear on your feet, carrying 40, 50, 60 pounds of gear on your back, and wearing this heavy wool uniform, and you begin to realize why things like straggling were such problems for Civil War armies marching about on campaign, and that oftentimes there were just real hard limits of what generals could really get their men to do and how fast they could get them to do it. Men would often temporarily abandon what they were ordered to do if, for example, they happened to just come across or even hear vague rumors of things like good sources of food or water nearby. And all of this hardship and misery that I've talked about so far, and we haven't even gotten to the part most people actually think of first when they think of this stuff. Of course, combat. Actual battle. So let's talk about battle and the soldier's experience of it from before to during to after. Many in this war, especially early on in both the war and in their service in it, were really kind of exuberantly patriotic at the start, especially if they were, as so many who fought in this war were, young men away from home for the very first time eager to prove to everybody their courage and patriotism and manhood. The common phrase they used was to see the elephant, which meant experiencing battle, being tested, finding out if one had what it took to prove one's manliness and honor in this ultimate test. From everything we can tell, most of these soldiers will, if they survive in the ranks for a while, have this eager mindset, this aura of enthusiasm and excitement about battle, have this just painfully scrubbed off of them, to be replaced with cynicism and disillusionment and these sorts of things, as they deal not just with the horrors of battle, but with the harshness and the degradation of military service in this time period, the things I've been talking about. And then, of course, with the reality of the sickness and grossness of a level that would even put people of that time off pretty badly. When the war began in the spring of 1861, many on both sides of the divide felt a sense of relief 
because the 15 years of constantly ratcheting up North versus South sectional animosity was finally coming to a head, and there was a sense of like, good, let's just fight and be over with it. And this, at least in my experience and observation, seems to be a feeling that males, especially young males in particular, are prone to, where if there's been a lot of animosity, you get to a point where you're like happy and relieved that it's just going to come to a physical conflict because you're like, fine, we can finally stop all this bitching and just let's have it out. And, you know, it's one thing when when you're like a youngster or a teenage kid to swing at each other a few times, maybe someone gets a bloody nose, but in most cases it doesn't go much beyond that. But when you're talking about building armies of tens and hundreds of thousands with modern firepower, it's a little bit more problematic. But that's how it was, as would be the case not quite 50 years later for European young men at the outbreak of the Great War. There was this sense that war would provide a place for individuals to prove themselves and to elevate themselves above kind of everyday mundane monotony and minor concerns, a chance for entire nations to kind of renew themselves and be born again from the experience. Historian Michael Adams says that within about one year, say by about the spring of 1862, a lot of this sort of naive exuberism was wearing off very fast. Part of this was due to having experienced the gritty reality of battle. Adams writes, quote, Romantic illusions failed to survive battle's grim truths. Recruits had been imbued with Courier and Ives' artful depictions of war, in which serried ranks of gaily uniformed soldiers led by plumed officers on horseback charged beyond the fallen who assumed restful poses. Such fantasies bore no relation to the reality of metal projectiles disintegrating fragile bodies as men screamed and cried." End quote. And there are lots of soldiers that express this kind of disillusionment and eventually decide, or sometimes very quickly after their first taste of battle, decide, yeah, this isn't what they say it is, and I don't really want to deal with it anymore. A soldier from Georgia wrote in the summer of 1862, quote, I see no glory in numbering those on the battlefield slain. It is nothing but horror from beginning to end, end quote. But what exactly was the experience like of those who went into battle in the Civil War? There are certain details that often get left out of depictions in books and movies and things. Although, of course, there's elements of it that obviously those things get right. In general, I think a lot of Civil War movies just don't look right in terms of the soldiers don't look young enough, they don't look dirty and tired and sick enough, and the battlefield is more orderly than it probably really was. This is part of my critique also of most Civil War reenactments. Well, one detail that often gets left out of these depictions and imaginings is that as a regiment, say, prepared to enter battle, a significant number of men, sometimes up to half, would just sort of kind of like disappear or at least kind of subtly shuffle back towards the rear, skulking away from harm's way. And that's what critics of this, you know, the, the other soldiers and, of course, the COs who were not involved in that behavior, they would call it things like skulking. Historian James McPherson writes, quote, During the war, a consensus emerged that in many regiments, about half of the men did most of the real fighting. 
The rest were known in Civil War slang as skulkers, sneaks, beats, stragglers, or coffee coolers. By the way, that last is a reference to they were hanging out near the rear and thus had time to wait until the coffee cooled off to where it wouldn't burn your face off to drink it. Back to McPherson. They, the skulkers, seemed to melt away when the lead started flying, to reappear next day with tight smiles and stories about having been separated from the regiment in the confusion. End quote. Now, skulkers and deserters were disproportionately likely to be poorer soldiers, in the socioeconomic sense, aside from the, you know, functioning a soldier sense. And McPherson in his work says that the studies of World War II in Korea indicated that even in those wars, combat performance, you know, actually being brave, going into battle, doing the fighting, that that combat performance tended to correlate strongly with a lot of factors like social class and education. And McPherson says that his own studies of this in the Civil War have led him to think that probably it was comparable in that regard. By the way, one of the main uses of cavalry at large Civil War battles, at least during the first couple years of the war, was to patrol to try to catch skulkers and deserters. Though from 1863 on, the armies would usually have provost guards that would perform this job. Confederates punished skulkers more harshly than Union soldiers on average, including giving some men the same 39 lashes that was actually literally used to punish a slave. And of course, in Stonewall Jackson's army, famously, men were often shot for these sorts of things. Of course, if at most half of the men in a regiment would not go into battle, that meant at least half, and often more, would go into battle as ordered. Soldiers often relied heavily on alcohol and or tobacco when they could get them to help steady their nerves before a fight. Although it seems like men getting actually drunk right before a battle was pretty rare. It did happen, and there were some guys who got in trouble for it, including even some officers. But usually it was just, you know, a stiff drink or two to calm the nerves, not enough to make you trip and, you know, bayonet yourself in battle. But you can imagine if a battle has happened and you're close to it, but you're not yet in it, the kind of horrible, jittery nerves you'd probably have, especially if you were new to this whole war thing. Then eventually, either they'd be ordered into battle or battle would fall upon them in the form of an enemy attack, maybe a surprise, maybe not. But either way, once one was in battle, you'd experience sensory overload and massive amounts of adrenaline and all the side effects that go along with that physiologically. And it really was just sensory overload in a big battle. A captain from Connecticut described the Civil War battlefield in the following language, quote, Incessant spattering and fiery spitting of musketry, with whistling and humming of bullets, and constant through all the demoniacal yell, advancing like the howl of an infernal tide. Bedlam, pandemonium, all the maniacs of earth and all the fiends of hell seem to have combined in riot amidst the crashings of storm and volcano, end quote. Men would start to get hit and go down, maybe right next to you, maybe even you yourself. It's well known and well documented that a big part of why Civil War battles were so much bloodier than the battles of earlier wars was due to the the changes in hardware, but in particular, the mismatch between hardware and tactics. In other words, 
It wasn't just that weapons had gotten more effective in the years right before the Civil War they had, but what made things even worse was that tactics hadn't kept pace with the innovation of hardware. So small arms and artillery had gotten much more accurate and effective, and yet men were trained and ordered to try to execute close-order offensive tactics, and they were trained and ordered to fight in close formation rather than spreading out more, as would have made sense given the firepower increases that had taken place. Generals believed that men simply wouldn't be brave or couldn't be trusted to be consistently brave if they weren't packed closely together. And on top of that, they were operating under the kind of, I don't know, vestigial, you might say, habits of drill and tactics that evolved over the centuries during the age of the smoothbore musket, wherein you kind of had to use massed, close-quarters, area-fire tactics in order to hit much of the enemy at all. But of course, by the time of the Civil War, not only had close-quarters drill warfare become not really helpful, it actually was often lethally counterproductive. In general, the advances in military hardware, and I'm, I might, I'm considering doing a bonus episode on kind of small arms and riflemen of this war, but those advances in military hardware in the years shortly before the Civil War had had the net effect of drastically strengthening the tactical defensive in most situations, especially if the defender was holding any sort of strategically advantageous position like high ground or behind some significant obstacle or anything like that. And if one looks at all of the large Civil War battles, what you find is that in a clear significant majority of cases, the side that was kind of more on the tactical defensive in the battle usually beats the side that was more on the tactical offensive. And yet, Civil War officers continue to cling to the notion of effective offense, often centering around things like trying to close into bayonet range, things that had basically worked in the Napoleonic era and had even mostly kind of worked in the Mexican-American War, especially considering the difference in quality of troops between the two armies. But of course, things had changed significantly, and it was not the same situation during the American Civil War as during those earlier wars. So there were relatively few instances of these sorts of tactics, offensives and bayonet charges and whatever, actually working in the Civil War. And the cases where they did work kind of stand out because they were not the norm. And on top of that, even in those cases in which offensive tactics actually do win a battle, they often would do so at such a staggering cost to one's own army that it would often be a very Pyrrhic victory to the winner. The Battle of Chancellorsville comes to mind. The vast majority of Civil War battle wounds came from small arms and artillery fire, not from bayonets or sabers. And yet generals often sought that decisive bayonet charge, that glorious war-winning battle. And perhaps even with further delusions of the cavalry coming in and exploiting that bayonet charge to ensure kind of total decisive victory, wiping out or capturing an entire enemy army. Now, this never actually happened, even in the largest Civil War battles. This delusion would prove to be just as, well, delusive as the myth of kind of going over the top to take the enemy trenches and achieve decisive breakthrough would be in World War I. Now, once engaged in the fight, men would fight as frantically as they could, often in harsh heat, often in conditions in which they were dehydrated, their lips cracking and pissing and or shitting themselves, either through fear or because of illness they were dealing with or both. 
Civil War small arms often inflicted some pretty nasty wounds. Most of the rifled muskets used in this conflict were about 57 or 58 caliber, meaning they fired a slightly cone-shaped, what was called a minier ball, kind of a cone-shaped musket bullet that was just over a half inch in diameter. Most small arms that are used in battle today, if you don't know, fire rounds that are usually between 22 and 30 caliber, meaning they're much smaller, lighter bullets and they get more of their killing power from higher velocity. Whereas the Civil War, Minier ball is not going very fast, but it's a giant heavy piece of lead by modern standards. So Civil War muskets fired these giant projectiles fairly slow relative to modern guns, but they made horrific wounds. Because of their fairly slow velocity, and because these bullets were of soft lead, unjacketed construction, and because of their large diameter, Civil War bullets would often stay in their victims' bodies, rather than passing cleanly cleanly through. It was also very common for bullets to careen about in really kind of bizarre and disturbing and gross ways inside of a victim's body. There are lots of crazy stories of this. For example, a soldier taking a bullet in the cheek, then it ended up in his shoulder, or a soldier that took a round to his side that ultimately somehow went through his body in weird ways and ended up behind his ear. A Confederate lieutenant at the Battle of Kennesaw Mountain took a hit as he was bending over. And the doctor who witnessed this described it as follows, quote, A bullet took him low down, about his waist and left side, and ranged up diagonally through the entire length of his body, tearing through his kidneys, bowels, stomach, lungs, and coming out his shoulder, End quote. Not surprisingly, with that kind of wound, the man soon died, and the doctor said blood was coming out of his mouth as he kind of sputtered out his last few words. Historian Michael Adams writes of this episode, quote, this is why experienced officers cautioned against crouching during an advance. The ball would travel the body lengthwise. This is also why surgeons amputated so many shattered limbs. Physicians lack the time, tools, and operating facilities, or medical knowledge, to reconstruct splintered bones. They had to remove the limb before gangrene and peritonitis attacked. End quote. So, in other words, bones were often shattered in ways that the medicine of this time period could not even remotely try to fix. The soft, unjacketed construction of minier balls meant that they deformed and spread out on impact, somewhat like a primitive version of modern-day soft-point and hollow-point ammunition. Men frequently took horrific wounds in the face. A Union soldier at the Battle of Cold Harbor in 1864 described a comrade wounded in the face as follows, quote, A tiny fountain of blood and teeth and bones and bits of tongue burst out of his mouth. He had been shot through the jaws. The lower was broken and hung down. Now, I'm not sure that particular soldier, whether he died or not, you know, we hear about wounds to the head and face like that, and we often think, oh, yeah, definitely the dude died. But the thing is, there were a fair number of Civil War uh, soldiers who got nasty wounds in the face, you know, blowing off a piece of their face or whatever, who somehow actually managed to survive. And then the rest of their life, you know, they just had this mutilated face. And uh, it might call to mind if you've watched 
the HBO series Boardwalk Empire, the one um, character in there is a very interesting character. Um, he's a World War I veteran, a, a World War I former sniper, and he took a wound to the face that blew off a chunk of his face, and he's got this kind of little artificial partial face that he wears over that and everything. But anyway, I mean, that's that kind of stuff. Um, probably more people survived those sorts of wounds in World War I than in the Civil War, just because medicine was better by World War I. But even so, there were Civil War veterans who took some nasty head and face wounds and still lived. And something that was frighteningly frequent in the Civil War, and actually in all wars, but especially in ones with firearms and explosives, including, by the way, present-day wars, and that is this. Wounds to the genitals, including having the genitals entirely or partially removed. Yes, somehow... They just never seem to mention getting your junk blown off in all the recruitment propaganda. But I'm sure that's just, you know, honest editorial oversight. Now, we have plenty of eyewitness descriptions from soldiers in battle, you know, who lived through battle, who were simply stunned and dumbfounded and overwhelmed at the volume of small arms and artillery fire in a Civil War battle. And records indicate that Civil War armies often went through several million rounds a month worth of ammunition during heavy campaigning periods. We have plenty of descriptions of major battles wherein projectiles from artillery and small arms are literally just mowing down vegetation and clear-cutting trees and that sort of thing. We also have plenty of eyewitness descriptions of soldiers' bodies getting hit with so many rounds in a heavy battle that the bodies were mutilated beyond all recognition. For example, a major in the 7th Maine set of bodies at the Battle of Spotsylvania in 1864 that they looked like, quote, nothing but a lump of meat or clot of gore, end quote. And of course, big artillery and cannon fire could cause even more dramatic mutilations, ripping off heads and limbs, often to entire groups of men at a time. A soldier from New Jersey described the following scene at Antietam as a result of artillery fire. Quote, None had ever heard such demoniacal shrieks. There protruded from the lacerated flesh the ends of the bones of the legs in a most horrible manner, making a sight that was simply sickening. Now, this man survived the battle and went on to survive Chancellorsville. He described similar scenes there, such as a man instantly getting the lower part of his face blown off. Of an artillery strike at Chancellorsville, he wrote, quote, Two men had been literally torn to pieces. Their remains were strewn over the roadway from one side to the other. One man's heart was still throbbing. Pieces of skull and human brains lay here and there, end quote. A Confederate private from Alabama at the Battle of Chancellorsville described the impact of these big guns on his unit, saying that he saw, quote, an arm and shoulder fly from the man just in front, exposing his throbbing heart. The foot of another flew up and kicked him in the face as a shell struck his leg. Another, disemboweled, crawled along on all fours, his entrails trailing behind, and still another held up his tongue with his hand, a piece of shell having carried away his lower jaw, end quote. A Union corporal described the effect of cannon on five attacking Confederate soldiers at Shiloh as follows, quote, One of them had his head taken off. One had been struck at the right shoulder and his chest lay open. One had been cut in two at the bowels, and nothing held the carcass together but the spine. One had been hit at the thighs, and the legs were torn from the body. 
the fifth and last one was piled into a mass of skulls, arms, some toes, and the remains of a butternut suit. Artillery gunners themselves suffered too. They would frequently suffer from bleeding ears during the battle. But this was among the least of their hazards, as the artillery duels between the opposing artilleries of the two armies would often cause gunners to get horribly mutilated by the other side's fire. We have many accounts of the kind of areas around where the artillery was set up just being sort of strewn about with random body parts and hunks of meat and viscera from men and horses who had been hit. Some accounts even talk about finding chunks of people and horses in trees after an artillery exchange. It was common in this war to suffer thousands of casualties during the space of one or at most just a few hours. For example, believe it or not, more men fell just on the Confederate side at the Battle of Franklin in the course of a few hours than the number of Americans who fell on D-Day over the course of the whole day. Officers actually suffered statistically worse than enlisted men in combat in this war. Officers, in general, were about 15% more likely to die in battle than were enlisted men, and generals were actually 50% more likely to die in battle than enlisted men. Much of this was due to the fact that in this war, officers still for the most part tended to lead from at or at least near the front lines, and they were often conspicuous targets for the other side. Taking out leaders would, of course, disrupt the other side's communications and coordination, and of course would also hurt their morale much more than just shooting one of the other side's privates. In this atmosphere of fear, of deafening noise, of complete chaos, men would frequently, and not surprisingly and quite understandably, often literally lose their minds. In the film Gettysburg, which I think is a pretty good movie, it's got some flaws and things, but it's pretty good overall, and it's definitely far superior to its uh, whatever prequel, sequel, God in Generals, Gods in Generals, excuse me, which is uh, is, is crap. But um, in Gettysburg, the old Irish sergeant in the main regiment, I think his name is Kilrain was his last name. Um, he's in Lawrence Chamberlain's main regiment that are going to become one of the most celebrated regiments of the whole war. This old Irish sergeant says that Men in battle frequently will just kind of keep frantically loading their rifles and never even bother to fire them, and will end up at the end of the battle with multiple rounds loaded down the barrel, having never fired once. And this is true. This sort of thing actually did happen. In fact, according to Michael Adams, there were over 27,000 rifles picked up from the battlefield in the aftermath of Gettysburg, and of them, 12,000 of them had two unfired loads in them, 6,000 actually had three, and one had as many as 23 loads in the rifle. Now, these are muzzle-loading rifled muskets. The one with the 23 loads in it must have had the last one almost coming out the front of the muzzle. But, you know, these people had drilled and practiced loading so much that when their brain shut down in the overwhelming, stunning stimulus of the battlefield, some of them would just go to on autopilot and just keep stuffing rounds in that thing. Eventually, in most battles, some men would start to panic and run, and that sort of thing could be highly contagious, and not always for the most rational reasons. As the war ground on, many men began to suffer from what would be called shell shock in World War I, and either battle fatigue or combat exhaustion in World War II. 
basically just being too ground down by too much overwhelming battlefield experience to keep doing it. It's simply an involuntary response at a certain point. And this got especially bad in some of the campaigns of 1864, which is when Grant adopted an attrition strategy in the East, which led to the highest casualty rates of the whole war, and which was also made worse by the fact that it was also at that point that trench warfare began to take place in some of the major battles. And trench warfare seems to be an exceptionally psychologically problematic form of war. Most generals and even doctors of this time period had no real sense of the fact that it wasn't in most cases a voluntary or character defect sort of a problem like cowardice, that it was simply the inevitable neurological and for that matter, probably endocrinal um, result of repeatedly exposing men to the overwhelming hardships of army life to begin with, to kind of drag them down in the first place, and then have this just kind of general hardship punctuated with the absolutely overwhelming stimulus of battle without things like adequate time for R&R to kind of recuperate. Battle in particular, as we now know scientifically, it overloads the nervous system, and it leads to massive secretions of stress hormones, which, you know, if those things continue long enough, they eventually start to shut down things like your immune system and to ruin your mental clarity and all these sorts of things. And this happens sooner or later even to very brave men. This is why competent militaries in the mid to late 20th century started having programs for things like regular rotations away from the front because they began to understand how this really worked and what it really was. But of course, in the 1860s, even the smartest military doctors mostly had not even the slightest understanding of this. And they would just chalk it up to a character defect or someone just wanting to get out of their duty. One of the few commanders who apparently did have at least some sort of instinctive understanding of this stuff was the often maligned Union general fighting Joe Hooker, the loser of the Battle of Chancellorsville. Now, while Hooker was not a very successful battlefield general, he was actually, a lot of historians acknowledge, pretty good at kind of organizational stuff, and he also was ahead of his time in setting up a relatively fair and regular furlough system for the Army of the Potomac, although unfortunately for the soldiers in that army, that was a program that largely went away after Hooker was removed from command. Even some famous Civil War commanders, including ones who did demonstrate bravery at various points in their career, including George McClellan, Richard Ewell, George Pickett, John Bell Hood, and the much-celebrated Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain seem to have exhibited symptoms of PTSD and or combat exhaustion at various times in their respective careers. There are reports of both officers and enlisted men breaking down kind of gradually, as well as reports of them seeming to just sort of snap almost instantly over one particular incident. Michael Adams recounts the experience of a Union private who was handing a canteen to a comrade whose head was suddenly blown off, spraying the private with the man's brains. The private apparently just lost his mind then and there and was ultimately not able to function anymore and ended up in a mental institution. On the other hand, Sam Watkins, who was a Confederate enlisted man who later became famous for his memoir of the war, recounted a story 
in which his unit were eating breakfast when a comrade got his head blown off in kind of a similar situation. And Watkins wrote of this, quote, His brains fell in the plate from which we were supping, and his head fell in my lap, deluging my face and clothes with his blood. End quote. Now, Watkins, unlike the Union soldier I mentioned a moment ago, did not lose his sanity. And this is one of those mysteries, even today I don't think we really quite understand what, what all goes into. You know, what makes one man crack and another man not crack in comparable, horrible situations. Now again, as I mentioned in regard to physiological illness, a commissioned officer could resign his commission, risking nothing more than just sort of maybe a little bit of social disapproval while an enlisted man could not choose to leave without risking severe punishment, possibly even death by firing squad. Now, in the insanity of a lot of these battles and campaigns and the devastating psychological effects that this would have on many of the men, there were stories, perhaps not surprisingly, of men mutilating and wounding themselves in order to get out of the army, something that became even more common in the second half of the war. Some men even committed suicide to end it all, rather than keep facing the chaos and uncertainty of battle. Winslow Homer's painting, Defiance, inviting a shot before Petersburg, Virginia, actually depicts a soldier basically attempting to commit suicide by exposing himself really kind of brashly to enemy fire. Now, this is at the Battle of Petersburg, one of those nasty kind of trench warfare battles in 1864 that sort of presaged World War I. And I'll link to the painting in the show notes for this episode so you can see it. Now, deliberately exposing yourself to enemy fire or even charging into a hail of enemy fire, that's one way to commit suicide. Others did things like shooting themselves or even, in some cases, laying down in front of oncoming trains. Painful and humiliating punishments like branding and whipping were often given out to those who went AWOL if they were caught, and um, like I said before, death by firing squad in some cases as well. Although that was something that relatively few generals, other than famously Stonewall Jackson, Braxton Bragg, and also William Tecumseh Sherman, were eager to order, especially early in the war. But later in the war, more and more generals were resorting to drastic measures to try and punish those who sought to get out of the army or get out of battle. But these harsher punishments did not, however, deter desertion. And in fact, desertion rates continued to increase in the face of increasingly harsh punishment. In fact, some people who've studied this issue believe that, in fact, uh, increasingly harsh punishments may have only increased desertions rather than deterring them because it made soldiers really hate their commanders and lose any kind of feeling of legitimacy towards them and lose their sense of moral obligation to their commanders and their sense of duty to stay in the ranks. Like I said before, early in the war, soldiers on both sides were eager to quote-unquote see the elephant in the common phrase of the time. This was accentuated in units that went through long periods of kind of tedium and boredom and marching around, and in general, believe it or not, morale tended to be higher in units that saw combat fairly regularly than in units that were just sort of rear echelon. However, many soldiers, after seeing the elephant, decided they didn't care to see it again if they had a choice. 
So you see men in their writings and journals and letters to folks back home go pretty quickly from gung-ho sort of greenhorns spoiling for a fight ready to prove how badass they are to kind of somber, serious, even bitterly cynical veterans. However, the press tried to keep up its romantic portrayals of combat long after the soldiers themselves had kind of given up on such notions. A Virginia private wrote after seeing battle, quote, I have seen enough of the glory of war. I am sick of seeing dead men and men's limbs torn from their bodies. End quote. And many soldiers on both sides wrote similar things after seeing combat, such as, I hope I will never be in another. No man can tell me anything about war. I have got a plenty. I am satisfied with fighting. I wish the war was over. You can never realize the severity of battle, and I hope it may never be my lot to go into another one. And... I got to see the elephant at last, and to tell you the honest truth, I don't care about seeing him very often anymore, for if there was any fun in such work, I couldn't see it. It is not the thing it is bragged up to be. Now, what about the aftermath of battle? Well, after the fighting was over, then you have the problem of how do you deal with the thousands, maybe tens of thousands of dead and wounded strewn about, sometimes over a great distance in a large battlefield. I mean, if you've ever been to any of the larger battlefields of the Civil War, places like Gettysburg or Antietam, things like that, you really get a sense for how spread out a lot of these battles often were. The lines could be, you know, over the space of a mile or more. Historian Michael Adams writes, quote, the medical and burial services must comb over the bloody floor of this abattoir, trying to retrieve those who still live and get them aid. Then they must dispose of the cadavers. We often tend to rush over this subject, cursorily referencing the flag-draped coffins and the official words of consolation. But this misleads us as to the real character of the grim landscape left by combat. End quote. Particularly in the first year of the war, medical services were almost nil, neither side having really properly prepared for this whole aspect of things. Those who were attempting to cart off the wounded generally made do with makeshift things, as there were never enough proper medical ambulance wagons to go about, especially early in the war. The wounded, who could at least still somewhat hobble around, often had to do their best to make it to a field hospital on their own. During the second year of the war, things began to improve somewhat in terms of the number of field hospitals and ambulances and medical personnel, but it was still pretty damned horrible by modern standards, and really, in some cases, literally is like something out of a bad horror movie. Of course, oftentimes sharpshooters would target those who were trying to aid the wounded if some sort of official truce had not yet been agreed to by the commanders of both sides. That was an important thing in the aftermath of battles, because usually, if they made a proper truce to deal with the dead and wounded, sharpshooters would respect that. But if there hadn't been a truce, then the idea was, well, we're still at a state of, of battle. And sometimes, for stupid reasons, including kind of personal pride generals wouldn't make a truce quickly, and people would suffer. You know, it meant that wounded men would have to lay suffering in kind of a no-man's land amongst other dead and wounded for longer than they really should have with all the negative things that that can cause, including unnecessary death and suffering. The most notorious large example of this taking place was at the Battle of Cold Harbor in 1864, where basically Ulysses Grant let thousands of men suffer extra unnecessarily, just because he was kind of reluctant to ask for a truce. Interestingly, 
Massive rainstorms fell on the battlefield in the aftermath of many, many large Civil War battles, enough times that it doesn't really seem to have been coincidence. To name just some of the more famous examples where big storms came in the aftermath of battle, Malvern Hill, Shiloh, Second Bull Run, Chancellorsville, Gettysburg. People had various theories as to why this happened so much, including theories about the noise or heat of battle, maybe interacting with the atmosphere to make rain happen. But these rainstorms were one of the reasons why the winning side of a Civil War battle often failed to follow up its initial victory and make it a complete rout. But of course, the rainstorms also meant that wounded men strewn about the battlefield had to lay in puddles and mud until they could be taken care of. Now, on the plus side, it might at least offer some relief from the dehydration that many of them were suffering from. It also might put out the brush fires. That's another thing you don't hear about very often, but apparently was extremely common to have brush fires get lit during the um, battle because of all the hot metal being shot about. There are some real horror stories about brush fires and about wounded men during and after battles. Historian Michael Adams eloquently describes the horrific nature of these scenes. Quote, Brush and grass fire started by red-hot projectiles consumed many wounded. Soldiers universally feared this end, and it traumatized men unable to save the crippled from the advancing inferno. The screams of roasting men, bellies ripped open by exploding cartridge boxes that ignited with a cheerful firecracker popping, haunted veterans, end quote. Also, on more than one occasion in this war, in the aftermath of a big battle, hogs would come feast on the dead and sometimes even on the still alive at the time wounded. Wounded, dehydrated men often lost their minds, and there are accounts of men drinking their own piss out of desperation. Nasty infections were the results of long periods of time that wounded men often had to spend out in the mud and blood and guts before they were finally picked up. Some were kind of ironically saved from even worse infection simply because they got maggots in their wound, which ate away some of the most sickly, diseased flesh. If and when you made it to a field hospital, your problems and your suffering were far from over. Hospitals near major battles were almost always overwhelmed, overcrowded, understaffed, undersupplied, often even lacking enough water to keep men hydrated and to keep things a little bit clean. Lucky men upon arriving to a field hospital would get a little water and some opium. Field hospitals would often be in the form of homes, barns, and other buildings that happened to be near battlefields, pressed into makeshift service. Often everything in it and everything about it was kind of makeshift. A door might be taken off its hinges and laid across some barrels or furniture to make an operating table, that sort of thing. A Union chaplain from Pennsylvania described the scene in a field hospital at the Battle of Gettysburg as follows, quote, here lies one with his leg shattered, the flesh torn by a shell, nothing but shreds being left. There lies one shot through the abdomen, the intestines protruding. Here lies one with his arm almost severed from his body, waiting for amputation. There lies one young and handsome shot through the face and head, his eyes swollen shut and covered with yellow putrid matter, his hair clotted with blood, his jaws torn, and a bullet through each cheek. 
end quote. According to Michael Adams, the high point for surgical staff in the Union Army was one for every 133 men in the Army. That of the Confederate Army was one per 324 soldiers, less than half as many, and yet, proportionally, the South managed to have about the same death rate, the same mortality rate, in its field hospitals, which, of course, raises obvious questions in the mind about how helpful medicine really was back then. Seems like it still was to a large extent, as Ben Franklin had put it a hundred years before, God heals, and the doctor takes the bill. Surgeons would often conduct rather painful examinations, um, probing wounds, trying to remove debris and projectiles from wounds, that sort of thing, without having given any anesthetic to the patient, other than maybe a shot of whiskey or maybe a stick to bite down on if the soldier was lucky. There was frequently not enough water or disinfectants, and as a result, doctors' hands and doctors' tools and instruments and things were just simply being used, you know, from one soldier's wounds to the next. Of course, as we know, spreading infections like crazy. As everybody knows, major wounds to the limbs were often treated with amputation, which, as horrible as it is, was the best method they had at the time to try to prevent a fatal infection. The doctor would use chalk and he would make a mark where the cut would be done on the arm or the leg, and if chloroform was available, they would give a little to the patient. But often, especially in the Confederate Army after about the first year of the war, there was no chloroform. Michael Adams describes how amputations were carried out in field hospitals. Quote, With a knife, the surgeon sliced to the bone, the soft tissue, just above the damaged area, and then completed severance with a hacksaw. He then tied off the arteries with oiled silk, the streamers left long enough for the rotted arterial ends to be tugged free days later. Good surgeons completed complex procedures in under two minutes. End quote. Horrible as this all was, believe it or not, it was actually pretty good by the standards of the time period for military field hospitals in war. Surgeons in the American Civil War were actually slightly better in their mortality rate due to complications than were European military surgeons in contemporary wars like the Crimean War just before the Civil War or the Franco-Prussian War that took place shortly after it. Military surgeons in the war also, believe it or not, achieved better results than civilian doctors in America at that time, and yet... Military surgeons were often seen and characterized at the time as just kind of butchers. That was the common imagery, who weren't really all that competent, and in many cases may have been drunk, and just kind of liked cutting off limbs even when it really wasn't medically necessary. Now, part of this view is that soldiers were, understandably, always very reluctant to undergo an amputation, for obvious reasons, and they didn't really appreciate that this was often the only course of treatment that was most likely to actually save their lives. And it didn't help that, in terms of the optics, as we would say, these Civil War field hospitals often would look the part of, like, some sort of human butcher shop with just kind of blood and guts everywhere, and the surgeon just covered in blood and all that stuff. You know, a doctor dripping blood, wielding knives and saws, and the result often being a literal pile of hundreds of severed limbs left in the aftermath. By the way, burial details would, in addition to burying 
Men who had died also bury limbs that had been amputated, sometimes hundreds of them buried at a time, though on occasion we're told that hogs got to the pile of amputated limbs before the burial detail did. As patients were moved from the makeshift field hospitals to real hospitals, they often encountered lots of delays due to shortages of things like ambulance wagons, and then due to shortages of things like cots and beds, they often found themselves lying around on the ground in the dirt, sometimes for days, waiting to be taken to a real hospital. Now, when they were finally picked up, it was often in what's known as an unsprung vehicle, meaning a wagon with no sort of like suspension or anything like that. Now, imagine this. You're being pulled in a horse-drawn wagon of some sort with no suspension over horrible roads that are basically just dirt and rocks. That's not going to be comfortable, even under the best circumstances when you're perfectly fine and healthy. But imagine also that you've got some sort of massive wound. You know, you've got a stump that recently was your leg. So there are many accounts of soldiers complaining very strongly about the just absolute agony of these rides from field hospital to real hospital. And nurses, doctors, and other people working at the hospitals would often remark on the horrific smells that would come from these wounded soldiers who arrived at the real hospital from the field hospital. Now, once in a real hospital, men frequently continued to suffer and even die from complications all the time, and many had to endure repeat amputations if they started to get gangrene despite the first one done at the field hospital. Some of the wounds and complications that they caused were just horrible. The famous poet Walt Whitman described a wounded soldier that he encountered at a hospital in Washington, D.C. The young man had been hit in the bladder months earlier, and urine was still coming out of the wound. Whitman said that the man was basically kind of always sitting in a puddle of his own piss, though of course Whitman did not use those terms. Because of the limitations of techniques and knowledge available at the time, men who had significant facial damage often had a hard time eating enough. Pain, suffering, depression, malnutrition, all of these things combined with the generally bad conditions in the hospitals to cause a lot of men to just kind of shut down and die. So that's what happened to the wounded. And as far as dealing with all the thousands of dead bodies, both human and animal, strewn about a battlefield in the aftermath of a big fight, this was the ultimate dirty job. Those who were detailed to this task usually had to try to burn the dead animals and then bury the dead people. Now, the majority of major Civil War battles most of the time occurred in the South in the spring, summer, and early fall. So, vast majority of Civil War battles are at a warm, if not hot, time of year. And even the few battles that occurred in Union territory, like the Battle of Antietam and the Battle of Gettysburg, those were at times of year where it was very hot as well. Antietam was September in Maryland, and Gettysburg was July in Pennsylvania. In both of those battles, we hear about the heat. Now think about this. Heat equals Rapid bloating and early decomposition and rotting of dead bodies. So bodies would be very rapidly, horribly bloated. And we have accounts of bodies literally bursting and exploding from all this. 
Flies, of course, would be all over the place. And of course, this then produced large amounts of maggots, and accounts describe the just kind of gruesome, rotting stench of death sort of hanging over the whole area of a battlefield, often for many days. One soldier described the corpses decomposing on the battlefield like this, quote, The eyes had bulged through their apertures in the flesh, distended to the size of eggs, and their hair lay long, tangled, and matted with blood, over a forehead blue and yellow by exposure and hastening corruption, end quote. Another wrote that the faces of the decomposing dead were, quote, black as charcoal and bloated, out of all human semblance, eyes, cheeks, forehead, and nose, all one general level of putrid swelling, twice the normal size, with here and there great blisters of putrid water, some the size of a man's fist, on face, neck, and wrists, end quote. Commanders preferred as much as possible to try to give this dirty job to blacks, slaves for the Confederates and black soldiers and so-called contraband, um, escaped or liberated slaves for the Union. However, in the aftermath of a big battle, there might not be enough blacks to do this, so plenty of white soldiers would be pressed into this detail as well. Most soldiers who died on the battlefield simply ended up being tossed into mass graves. They'd be piled up with others who were killed in that battle, and if there were very large numbers of dead, sometimes the dirt piled on top of all the bodies might only be a foot deep or less. So many times, wind, rain, and even scavenging animals would quickly expose bodies in these mass graves, which then might be preyed upon further by scavengers. Civilians in the vicinity of major battles would oftentimes be themselves severely traumatized by the battle and also by its gruesome aftermath that often lingered. And there are reports of even civilians seeming to just flat out go crazy. Sometimes a major battle would happen in or near a small town, and you'd quickly end up with way more dead and wounded soldiers in the area than there were inhabitants of the town itself. So, for example, Gettysburg, in 1863, had a bit under 2,500 residents, but the battle resulted in 20,000 wounded to deal with, not even counting all the dead bodies. The inhabitants of areas around where battles took place sometimes would just get completely overwhelmed, and they might flee as refugees even if their home was still intact, just to get away from all the horrors and the carnage. Now... As for the soldiers who survived a battle or a bunch of battles, there is ample evidence that many of them ended up with severe cases of what today, of course, we would call post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD. We have just tons of reports of the classic symptoms. Michael Adams writes, quote, in one key manifestation of the condition, patients suffer the nightmare reliving of profoundly disturbing episodes. Psychological damage may produce extremes of character, including unreasonable anger, violence, alcohol addiction, and loss of concentration. The pre-psychiatric era had no clinical terms to describe what physicians were seeing so that doctors misdiagnosed mental wounds as cowardice, character loss, or lack of patriotism, whereas today we might discern a profile of damage inflicted by war, end quote. 
it was very, very common for Civil War soldiers to report recurring nightmares, as well as things like the inability to fall asleep at all. Many doctors and officers were convinced that men exhibiting these types of symptoms, they were just cowards. They just had character flaws, rather than understanding that their nervous system had just been fucked up beyond its capacity. And as a result, many doctors and military commanders had no sympathy for psychologically ruined men. Now, if you think it's hard for veterans today to, number one, admit their psychological wounds, and number two, to seek and get proper treatment today, it was exponentially worse on all counts in the 1860s. Again, Michael Adams, quote, Soldiers' reluctance to be stigmatized by confessing to emotional upset makes it hard to quantify Civil War mental wounds. A lack of bureaucratic precision in describing individual cases compounds the problem. We do know that huge numbers deserted, especially as the destructive fighting ground on. At least 105,000 rebels and 279,000 Yankees officially absconded, and probably many more did so who were never cataloged. We cannot always discover the severity and longevity of mental anguish in given cases, but we can say that thousands suffered mental wounds, some clearing up quickly, others lingering and possibly healing over time, while some combat traumas never receded. End quote. And then, of course, there were soldiers who were not killed or wounded, but ended up as prisoners of war. 409,000 soldiers, counting both sides, became POWs during this war, and of them, 56,000 of them would die due to the horrible conditions in the POW camps. Now, this almost th now this almost 14% death rate means that statistically speaking, Civil War POW camps are actually more dangerous places than were Civil War battlefields. Conditions were on average a little worse for Union POWs in Confederate prison camps than vice versa, but not by that much. Now, the reason for the worst conditions in the Confederate camps was largely lack of resources more than deliberate malice. I might talk in more detail about this stuff in a future episode, you know, get more into the POW issue. And there's a lot of dark and controversial stuff, including the reasons why prisoner exchanges, which were done early in the war, were eventually stopped, which led directly to the horrific conditions in POW camps as they became grossly overcrowded during the course of the war. Of course, many of you may have seen some of the photos of Civil War POWs shortly after being let out, and if you have, you may have noticed how similar they often look in their condition to inmates of Holocaust concentration camps at the end of World War II. So why did they go through this? Why did they fight? What made men sign up, most of them at least nominally voluntarily, to do all this stuff and to go all through all this stuff and to risk all this? And what made those who kept up the fight in the face of all this, what made them do that? What made them stay in the ranks and keep going into the breach repeatedly?
in general, speaking in broad strokes about kind of big picture motivations, most Northerners describe their main motivation as fighting to preserve the Union, and most Southerners describe their main motivation as getting independence. But beyond those really broad brush strokes, what can we say seems to have motivated the soldiers of this war into joining up and dealing with all these hardships and taking all these risks and staying in the fight, even when things got really bad? And as I think you've gotten a sense, things got really, really bad really quickly and stayed that way for the duration of the war. A key source in trying to get as best a window as we can into the mindset and motivation of the soldiers of this war is the book For Cause and Comrades, Why Men Fought in the Civil War by James McPherson. This book is based on McPherson's studies of over 1,000 personal documents, basically letters and diaries, from Civil War soldiers on both sides. His sample comes from the writings of over 600 Union soldiers and over 400 Confederate soldiers, which... You know, there were more Union soldiers than Confederate soldiers in the war, hence the the imbalance there. It actually is trying to represent closer to the numbers that actually participated in the war. Now, McPherson admits that this is not entirely representative of all soldiers in this war, and so he says it's biased a bit towards Confederates, actually, believe it or not, that only about 29% of all Civil War soldiers were Confederates, and yet about 40% of his documents were from Confederates, and that this um, sample is a bit biased in favor of kind of native-born upper- and middle-class soldiers who enlisted relatively early in the war. And he says the reason for that is because they wrote a lot more than others who didn't fit that category, and also they were more likely to have families who kept these things and preserved these letters and diaries from the war as compared to, you know, black soldiers and their families and immigrants and poor soldiers and so on. Also, McPherson says that his sample is disproportionately um, biased towards soldiers who did most of the real fighting and suffered a lot of the worst casualties. So it may be, in other words, most revealing about the thoughts and motivations of the soldiers who were gung-ho, the ones that didn't skulk, the ones that, you know, charged into the breach. McPherson writes of Civil War soldiers as a whole, quote, Most Union and Confederate soldiers were neither long-term regulars nor draftees, but wartime volunteers from civilian life whose values remained rooted in the homes and communities to which they longed to return. They did not fight for money. The pay was poor and unreliable. Most volunteers and their families made economic sacrifices when they enlisted. What prompted them to give up several of the best years of their lives, indeed to give up life itself in this war that killed almost as many American soldiers as all the rest of the wars this country has fought combined? What enabled them to overcome that mo most basic of human instincts, self-preservation? So, to kind of set the framework for this study, McPherson uses an analysis of motivation that is based on what was devised by a historian named John A. Lynn, who studied the armies of the French Revolution. And Lynn identified kind of three categories of motivation for soldiers. He said, there's initial motivation, which is why did a man join in the first place? There's sustaining motivation, what kept him in the army over time, despite the hardships and dangers. And then there's 
combat motivation, which is what made him face the dangers of battle if he's not one of the, the skulkers or deserters. During the first year of war, all men on both sides were volunteers, and during the second year, most still were. And McPherson says that the volunteers from those first two years continued to form the backbone of both armies in terms of, like, the real fighting men throughout the rest of the war. McPherson says that a lot of the initial motivation for these early volunteers was what he calls rage militaire, and I think he might be borrowing that from Lynn because it's a French phrase, which... McPherson describes this as, quote, a patriotic furor that swept North and South alike in the weeks after the attack on Fort Sumter, end quote. He says that this kind of initial rage calmed down for a while and then flared up repeatedly on one side or the other over the course of the war due to various, you know, victories and defeats and things. A young Pennsylvanian wrote, quote, this contest is not the North against the South. It is government against anarchy, law against disorder, end quote. An Indiana lawyer, who eventually rose to the rank of brigadier, wrote to his wife, who apparently was a pacifist, after Fort Sumter, quote, It is better to have war for one year than anarchy and revolution for 50 years. If the government should suffer rebels to go on with their work with impunity, there would be no end to it, and in a short time, we would be without any law or order, end quote. By the way, that kind of slippery slope argument is very common in Union soldiers talking about their motivations. An English immigrant who hailed from New Jersey wrote to his father back across the pond, quote, if the Unionists let the South secede, the West might want to separate the next presidential election. Others might want to follow, and this country would be as bad as the German states. End quote. Relatively few Union volunteers, other than a fairly small minority who were kind of genuine committed abolitionists, explicitly mentioned slavery as a main motive for volunteering in the first place. On the other side, some Confederates actually did explicitly mention preserving slavery in their case as a motive for joining the army. A Virginia schoolteacher wrote, quote, Better, far better, to endure all the horrors of civil war than to see the dusky sons of Ham leading the fair daughters of the South to the altar, end quote. And a Kentuckian wrote, quote, The vandals of the North are determined to destroy slavery. We must all fight, and I choose to fight for Southern rights and Southern liberty, end quote. And a South Carolina volunteer wrote, quote, A stand must be made for African slavery, or it is forever lost, end quote. So, as you already got a taste there, and you could find many other examples of this, the Southerners would often talk about rights and liberties, but of course, maybe ironically to our eyes and ears, one of the rights that was key that they were really talking about was the right to continue to own African slaves as property. McPherson writes the following about this issue. This is interesting. Quote, This pairing of slavery and liberty as the twin goals for which Confederates fought appeared in many volunteers' letters. Some dealt with the paradox by denying that it existed, but most Southern volunteers believed they were fighting for liberty as well as slavery. Southern recruits waxed more eloquent about their intention to fight against slavery than for it, that is, against their own enslavement by the North. Subjugation was the favorite word of Confederate recruits to describe their fate if the South remained in the Union or was forced back into it. 
for Union and Confederate volunteers alike, abstract symbols or concepts such as country, flag, constitution, liberty, and legacy of the revolution figured prominently in their explanations of why they enlisted. For Confederate soldiers, a more concrete, visceral, and perhaps more powerful motive also came into play, defense of home and hearth against an invading enemy, end quote. And this notion of defending your home and hearth was particularly prominent amongst Virginians. They tended to be the most vehement about that sort of thing. And that makes sense, as Virginia faced the first major invasion of the war and was invaded and occupied for much of the war, and a lot of the nastiest battles and campaigns happened in Virginia. Another set of motivations that was especially strong for Southerners, but which were also very prominent in the writings of a lot of Union soldiers, were things like duty and honor, often expressed in explicitly masculine terms having to do with proving or validating one's manhood. And Southerners were definitely more likely to be boastful about their manhood than were Northerners. So these sorts of things motivated guys to sign up, but once you had volunteers, what motivated them to actually stay in the ranks and even go into harm's way and fight? Well, part of it was leadership. McPherson writes, quote, Studies of combat motivation focus on leadership as a key factor in the fighting effectiveness of a unit. Most Civil War soldiers would have agreed that the quality of their officers had a great deal to do with their willingness and ability to fight. They would also have agreed that the two most important criteria for a good officer were concern for the welfare of his men and leadership by example, that is, personal courage and a willingness to do anything he asked his men to do, end quote. So the types of officers that men tended to respect and follow the most were those who shared in all the hardships of marching and who exposed themselves to dangers on the battlefield, that sort of thing. In other words, they very much appreciated and responded positively to leaders that didn't ask them to do things that they themselves weren't willing to do. Another factor in a lot of motivation, particularly in terms of affecting one's willingness to potentially go into battle, was that the stresses of battle often seemed to cause an increase in religiosity for many soldiers, which then itself became kind of a sustaining and combat motivation for the believers. By the way, as a side note, my own view on this, particularly after reading Upon the Altar of the Nation by Harry Stout, is that this uptick in personal religiosity in the, in the battlefield also ended up providing a very, very fertile ground for the governments of both sides of this war to further cultivate and strengthen the civil religion of their side into their side's soldiers. But aside from that, you know, many soldiers carried or started some way along the war carrying um, pocket-sized New Testaments and things like that into battle. And there were, of course, all kinds of stories about these stopping bullets, that sort of thing. McPherson writes about the religiosity of these soldiers, quote, Union and Confederate soldiers were products of the Second Great Awakening, the wave of evangelical revivals, which swept the United States in the first half of the 19th century. Civil War armies were, arguably, the most religious in American history. Wars usually intensify religious convictions. There were few atheists in the rifle pits of 1861-65. Many men who were at best nominal Christians before they enlisted experienced conversions to the genuine article by their baptism of fire. And soldiers who were deeply religious when they enlisted became more so on the battlefield. End quote. Many 
soldiers had a version of Christianity that was very kind of fatalistic, which it's common for guys experiencing a lot of combat to become fatalists. So, for example, a Pennsylvanian who'd had a brother killed in battle in 1861 wrote back to his family, quote, His time was set by the Almighty Man. He was due to die, and if he hadn't been killed in the battlefield, he might have died in the hospital or some other place. I think our time is all set when we shall die and before we want to die, and it makes no difference where we are. End quote. And a lot of soldiers express this sort of fatalism. Many soldiers and officers said that religion made soldiers more brave, and some soldiers and officers who said this were even themselves not religious. In some cases, even you'll find the occasional person kind of lamenting that they just, you know, don't believe or whatever. That said, Christianity did at least sometimes cause conflicts in the minds and hearts of some of the soldiers. So some Christian soldiers struggled to kind of reconcile things like thou shalt not kill, turn the other cheek, all of the things you can find in certain parts of the Bible about peacemaking, including the idea of Christ as the Prince of Peace, all these sorts of things, you know, love thy neighbor. And then how do you reconcile that with the requirement that in war, not only is it okay to kill, it's actually a good thing. And some men seem to have really struggled with this. So, for example, a lieutenant colonel from Indiana wrote, How can a soldier be a Christian? Read all Christ's teachings, and then tell me whether one engaged in maiming and butchering men, men made in the express image of God himself, can be saved under the gospel. And, by the way, this lieutenant colonel himself was tragically killed in 1864. Now, how most soldiers sought to reconcile these sorts of conflicts in their minds was with the sorts of ideas you'd expect, things like thinking that God's on my side and therefore against the other side, so I'm doing the Lord's work on the battlefield, etc., etc. And, of course, many also tried to kind of cope with any guilt they might have felt for killing by basically saying that, look, in the heat of battle, it's just self-defense, it's just kill or be killed, that sort of thing. A lot of times, and this is common in other wars as far as I've come across as well, there would be great emphasis placed on the distinction between killing in battle and kind of just murder. And as a result, during this war, snipers and sharpshooters and those kinds of characters were often denigrated by both sides because they kind of felt like men like that, what they're doing is almost more like murder than sort of killing in the, the heat of combat. However, as the war just dragged on and continuously got more bloody and destructive, a lot of these fine distinctions between killing and murder kind of eroded and even broke down, as both sides increasingly kind of resorted to just ruthless pragmatism in their justifications for doing things, including things that just a year or two earlier everyone would have likely condemned as beyond the pale and not even, you shouldn't even consider doing such things. Now, increased religiosity was particularly strong in the Confederate army in the latter stages of the war. There was a wave of religious revival that swept through Confederate armies in the last year or two of the war, and this seems to have contributed a lot to the Confederates actually holding out as long as they did. Now, you might ask yourself whether or not that's a good or a bad thing. Well, definitely for the guys killed during the last, however, you know, six months, year, whatever of the war. It would have been better if the side which was going to lose anyway would have just realized it and thrown in the towel. Now, of course, soldiers were motivated by the desire to avoid 
being seen as a coward, especially in the eyes of their comrades and any loved ones in their community back home. The fact that volunteer units were typically composed of men from the same communities only strengthened this tendency, and those who were cowardly faced huge amounts of shame. However, a common thing in wars, and not just this one, is that once a soldier has shown courage a few times in real combat, he often becomes less worried about being accused of cowardice, since he kind of feels like he's proved himself, and he becomes more practical about just kind of surviving. Or, to put it less charitably, you might say he kind of makes his peace with the instinct to not always be brave, if you want to stay alive. And this was especially pronounced as soldiers got close to the end of their term of enlistment, at least in the case of the Union Army. Because Confederate soldiers didn't really have terms of enlistment. It was basically, you serve either until the war is over or until you are taken out of action by death or wounds. Related to that kind of social feeling of not wanting to be a coward, another strong motive in keeping many soldiers in the ranks was pride in one's regiment. There was a lot of unit pride for regiments on both sides. Pride in one's regiment was often tied up with pride in one's state and local community. Regimental pride is the reason for the whole phenomenon of color bearers, the guys who carried a flag on a, on a staff into battle instead of carrying a rifle. And the honor associated with this and the insane bravery often displayed by men who were the color bearers and those who kind of picked up the colors when the original color bearer was struck down. There were tons of stories in this war of men who were willing to risk everything for the sake of picking up and carrying a flag. McPherson writes, quote, The flags, by which he means of both nation and regiment, acquired a special mystique for Civil War soldiers. Color bearers enjoyed a special pride of place and also a special risk since the enemy directed its heaviest fire against the colors. There was rarely any shortage of volunteers to carry the flags if the color bearers were shot down. One of the most honorable feats a regiment could accomplish was to capture enemy colors. The worst shame imaginable was to lose its own colors to the enemy. End quote. Now, these volunteer regiments were recruited from particular localities, so the men often knew each other, and this only enhanced regimental pride. Regiment was supposed to be composed of 10 100-man companies, so about a 1,000 men, though most regiments rarely had that many, and often had half that or even less. As the war ground along, regiments developed all kinds of nicknames and reputations based on their character, or their behavior, or their performance in combat, and, you know, some of these were pretty complimentary, but others were not so much. There were units who had reputations for being a problem, for being troublemakers, and even for being kind of cowardly or incompetent in battle. Now, keep in mind that because these regiments were raised from a particular locality, they often contained a lot of men who were related to each other. Now, this might be a good thing from the point of view of kind of unit cohesion, but it also means that if a particular regiment suffers badly in a particular engagement, you could literally be wiping out entire sections of family trees. The Civil War regiment that suffered the worst combat losses of the entire war was, for the Union, the 1st Minnesota, which suffered 85% casualties at Gettysburg, and for the Confederates, the 1st Texas, which suffered 82% casualties at Antietam. Kind of funny how both of those are first for their state regiments. 
Maybe you don't want to be number one. By the way, just as a side note, the cases of close relatives being on opposite sides of the war are actually not that common, but they did occur. Most frequently, it would take place between members of the same family who were from the upper south and border states. So predominantly places like Kentucky, Virginia, Missouri, etc. Pretty rare for people who lived either pretty far north or pretty far south. Kentucky Senator John Crittenden had actually two sons, one of whom became a Union general and the other a Confederate general. Many regiments actually had pets that they brought around with them that served as their mascot and kind of combination mascot and totem good luck charm. And most of these would be mundane animals like dogs and pigs. Those were particularly common, but other times on some occasions, exotic things, including at least one regiment that had an eagle that they brought around as their mascot. Another regiment had a camel and one regiment even had a tame bear that they brought around with them. As was first really studied and kind of codified in academic language in the case of World War II, in the Civil War, once men were in or even near to harm's way, a lot of an individual soldier's motivation to stay in the fight and do his duty came from what's called primary group cohesion, meaning basically one's immediate small unit, literally the guys just to your right and left in the battle. And again, the fact that volunteer regiments were usually made up of people from the same regions and towns made this bond even more strong than what we usually think of in like World War II. A New York veteran who was in some very nasty battles, including the Wilderness, Spotsylvania, Cold Harbor, Petersburg, responded to a question about his motivation on the battlefield as follows, quote, You ask me if the thought of death does not alarm me. I will say I do not wish to die. I myself am as big a coward as any could be, but give me the ball, by which he means the bullet, before the coward when all my friends and companions are going forward. Once, and only once, was I behind when the regiment was under fire, and I can't describe my feelings at that time. None can tell them, only a soldier. I was not able to walk, but as soon as the rattle of musketry was heard, I knew my regiment was engaged. I hobbled on the field and went to them. The untrained and old soldier are different in many respects. As to life, the new one looks out for himself in or out of battle. The old one, when away from his companions, thinks of them and goes in, and the danger to himself is forgotten. And of course, many soldiers on both sides expressed similar feelings. So that certainly helped men with combat motivation, but James McPherson says that kind of larger ideals, things like patriotism and ideology provided more of what he calls the sustaining motivation that kept fighting men fighting and kept units together even after they suffered big losses or something like that. So how did the grunts on either side see these bigger picture motivations for fighting, these larger ideals? Interestingly, studies that were done extensively on combat motivation and small unit cohesion in the Second World War found a surprisingly low amount of sort of big picture patriotism and nationalism and understanding of the supposed reasons for the war. These things were either minor or very vague or seemingly non-existent in most soldiers when asked about why they were fighting and what the war was about. And the same was largely true for Vietnam. But 
We're talking about different kinds of soldiers. World War II and Vietnam soldiers were mostly draftees or professional regulars, career soldiers. Whereas in the Civil War, most soldiers on both sides were actually volunteers. And McPherson says that, at least based on his research, ideology seems to have been a massive part of many Civil War soldiers' motivations. Bill Wiley, who's the author of the books The Life of Johnny Reb and The Life of Billy Yank, which is still seen as a classic source for many aspects of kind of common soldier experience in this war. In that book, Wiley portrayed Civil War grunts as being basically as non-political as World War II soldiers. But James McPherson disagrees with that, as does the famous late British military historian John Keegan, who Keegan goes even further, having called the armies of the American Civil War the first truly ideological armies, which to me is a bit of an overstatement, but definitely based on reading For Cause and Comrades by McPherson, I think it's pretty clear that ideology of some sort or another was a strong motivating factor for a lot of soldiers on both sides. Now, common soldiers on both sides often wrote of their country as a big motivation. And it was a common phrase for them to say something along the lines of being willing to sacrifice themselves upon the altar of their country or nation. Hence, of course, the origin of the great book by Harry Stout upon the altar of the nation that I've referenced so many times in the Not-So-Civil War series. But soldiers who were married, and especially if they also had children, often showed a pretty strong sense of conflict in their letters to their wives and the letters they got back from their wives, their conflict between their duty to their family and their duty to the country. And it was certainly common for wives to express some dismay at the guy being in the war that, you know, in most cases, volunteering and going to fight and like, Hey, we need you here at home to take care of the household and be the breadwinner and all that stuff. And this is especially important if you're talking about family farmers, because, of course, the adult male head of household is doing a lot of the physical labor. And without him, the family might not be able to find or afford to hire someone else to do these things. So many of the men who were serving and felt this conflict with having dependents back home would try to frame it often to a very upset wife, as they were fighting for their family by fighting for their country. And often in the case of Southerners, they would explicitly do this in language along the lines of defending hearth and home from the foreign invading evil hordes. James McPherson writes, quote, The urge to defend home and hearth that had impelled so many Southerners to enlist in 1861 took on greater urgency when large-scale invasions became a reality in 1862. Men who had opposed secession were nevertheless roused to fighting pitch by northern invasion. If I am killed tomorrow, said a major in the 2nd Virginia Cavalry, on the eve of the Battle of Fredericksburg, it will be for Virginia, the land of my fathers, and not for the damned secession movement. End quote. In 1863, at a time when much of Mississippi was occupied by the Union, a 33-year-old Confederate private and former schoolteacher from Mississippi wrote this in his diary, quote, Let me liberate my home from the varlet's tread, and then, 
My country shall be freed from the fiendish vandals who thirst for the extermination of a people who are actuated by motives as far above those that influence and characterize the enemy as is the soaring eagle above the most insignificant reptile. End quote. Well, that's a bit hyperbolic. Once northern invasion and occupation of southern territory was actually happening on a large scale, it's really easy to understand why a lot of average southern men, most of whom statistically did not own slaves, and a fair number of whom had maybe even previously been lukewarm on secession or even in some cases opposed to it, why these guys would have then volunteered to fight against the Union Army. And that this only intensified as the Union Army's occupations became increasingly larger and went increasingly tougher against southern civilian populations in kind of the post-McClellan era of the Union Armies. Compared to Confederate motivations that are expressed in these writings, Union soldiers' motivations are kind of less obvious and more concrete. They're in a way more abstract. And some Confederate soldiers seem not to have really understood why the average Northerner would want to fight him at all. A clerk in the Confederate government's War Department wrote in 1863, quote, Our men must prevail in combat or lose their property, country, freedom, everything. On the other hand, the enemy, in yielding the contest, may retire into their own country and possess everything they enjoyed before the war began. End quote. But even though their version of patriotism was more abstract and less immediate and tangible than that of the Confederates, I think it's impossible to deny that Union soldiers obviously believed in their version of patriotism. The fact was that many Northerners had by this time been heavily indoctrinated since they were very young into the kind of Daniel Webster and Abraham Lincoln style of nationalism, this ideology in which having a large consolidated nation is just accepted as being a wonderful thing in and of itself, as kind of an article of faith, as an unquestionable dogma, as an axiom. By the way, this is why the notion of a war to save the Union was always more popular and less controversial amongst Northerners than a war to free the slaves. This is a type of capital N nationalism, right, that would later be enshrined in things like the Pledge of Allegiance with its phrase, one nation, indivisible. And this is something that really smacks to me much more of the Jacobins in the French Revolution than it does the decentralist principles of 1775 and 1776. But these beliefs led many Northern soldiers to say things like, I do not want to live if our free nation is to die or be broken by the foul hand of treason. And far better would it be if the war should continue until every home should be made desolate than to surrender to those miserable despots who are trying to destroy our country. And thousands of precious lives will have to be sacrificed to support the best government on God's footstool, the best government ever made. End quote. And basically, to me, these are sort of genteel Victorian ways of expressing thoughts like, we'll put a boot in your ass, it's the American way, America, fuck yeah, you know, the idea that once the secession of the American colonies from the British Empire took place, no one else is allowed to ever secede from anything ever again. The fact that these sorts of sentiments were often expressed in personal letters and diaries means we really have to take it at face value that a lot of these soldiers really meant these things. 
McPherson says that out of the over 1,000 documents he studied in researching for Cause and Comrades, about two-thirds of those expressed what we would see as a patriotic motivation for serving and fighting in the war, and that the percentage was about the same on both sides, Union and Confederate. He also points out that others may have held those beliefs, but not expressed them much, as they might have just taken those sorts of things for granted as being held by most people, and that's true. If you're in a society where most people believe the same stuff as you, you may not talk about those beliefs nearly as much as you may talk about things that are more controversial or aren't shared by everybody. On the other hand, McPherson admits that the sources that he consulted are biased in favor of those volunteers of 1861 and 62, and thereby kind of tilted a bit against people like draftees and substitutes. In general, McPherson says patriotism as a prime motive tended to correlate strongly with the social class of the soldier's background, which often, though not always, correlated with rank, though there were, of course, some enlisted men from wealthy families to be found, as well as the other way around, some generals from humble origins. And I would guess that probably social class and military rank correlated a bit more strongly in the Confederate Army than in the Union Army, but I'm not certain about that. I don't have figures in front of me on that or anything like that. It's just my my guess. But again, in general, according to McPherson, the more wealth and education one had, the more one tended to mention patriotic-type motives. And again, we mentioned before that those things like social class and education also correlated strongly with things like bravery and combat and all that sort of stuff. It's particularly important to understand the differing motivations of people from different backgrounds in the Confederate Army in order to try to understand the implications about things like the degree to which a defense of slavery was a motivation for Confederate soldiers, and the degree to which this was just sort of wrapped up with broader senses of patriotism and wanting independence. McPherson writes, quote, Patriotic motivations appear to have been shared more evenly across class lines in the Union Army than among Confederate troops. In the Confederate Army, the highest status groups, members of planter families and of slaveholding professional families, voiced patriotic sentiments at almost twice the rate of non-slaveholding soldiers. A similar, though less marked pattern occurred between the Deep South, with its higher percentage of slaves and slaveholders, and the Upper South. The contrast between South Carolina and North Carolina was particularly notable. 84% from South Carolina avowed patriotic convictions compared with 46% from North Carolina. In the Union Army, there was no such regional variation, and the disparity between higher status and lower status groups was much less marked than between Confederates of slaveholding and non-slaveholding status. Thus, there was a greater democratization of patriotic motivations across class and regional lines in the Union sample. It is impossible to know whether the same contrast held true for all three million Civil War soldiers. If so, it might help to explain the dogged determination that sustained Union volunteers through four long years of fighting in enemy territory against a foe sustained by the more concrete motive of defending that territory. The prototypical unwilling soldier who expressed no patriotic sentiments and would have preferred to be at home was a non-slave-owning Southern married farmer with small children who was drafted in 1862 or enlisted only to avoid being drafted. Southern 
non-slaveholding married farmers seemed particularly bitter on this matter. They gave substance to the theme of a rich man's war and a poor man's fight, end quote. In other words, owning of slaves and the resulting stake one held in the slavery system correlated really strongly with being patriotic for the Confederate cause. The same was true if you look at things like who in the Confederacy favored and voted for secession in the first place. It correlates very strongly with slaveholding. Believe it or not, both Union and Confederate soldiers who expressed Patriotic sentiments often expressed them in terms of fighting for liberty, and many, again on both sides, would often explicitly link their cause to the cause of 1776, just with, of course, very different interpretations and emphases of what really defined the central legacy or takeaway of the American Revolution. So, in other words, Union and Confederate soldiers took away different things from what the American Revolution was all about and what its importance and legacy really were. Southerners tended to focus on the secession of the 13 colonies away from the British Empire as the key important thing, while Yankees focused on the union that resulted from the revolution as the important thing. Now, looking just at Southerners and comparing Southerners in the Civil War to Southerners in the American Revolution, one difference is that... Southerners in the Civil War were definitely much more comfortable with explicitly talking about and defending slavery as a good thing and as an important part of their own liberty, whereas slave-owning Southerners in the American Revolutionary Era, including perhaps most famously Thomas Jefferson, actually saw their slave-owning as at least being on some level a contradiction or a problem, and they at least kind of showed some discomfort with the whole thing which is why they much preferred euphemisms when talking about it. James McPherson sums up his findings on this topic based on looking at hundreds of Confederate soldiers' documents as follows, quote, Unlike many slaveholders in the age of Thomas Jefferson, Confederate soldiers from slaveholding families expressed no feelings of embarrassment or inconsistency in fighting for their own liberty while holding other people in slavery. Indeed, white supremacy and the right of property in slaves were at the core of the ideology for which Confederate soldiers fought. End quote. Some statements by Confederate soldiers expressing these sorts of ideas are as follows. We are fighting for our liberty against tyrants of the North who are determined to destroy slavery. This country without slave labor would be completely worthless. We can only live and exist by that species of labor, and hence I am willing to fight to the last. And, fight forever rather than to submit to freeing Negroes among us. We are fighting for rights and property bequeathed to us by our ancestors. And lastly, the Emancipation Proclamation is worth 300,000 soldiers to our government at least. It shows exactly what this war was brought about for and the intention of its damnable authors, end quote. By the way, on that subject, the Emancipation Proclamation, a New York corporal wrote of it shortly after it was issued, that it meant the war would not end quickly, quote, for I know enough of the Southern spirit that I think they will fight for the institution of slavery, even to extermination, end quote. And many historians have pointed out that the Emancipation Proclamation strengthened 
the Confederate cause for a while, because it unified Southern opinion behind the war while dividing Northern public opinion. And this public opinion reaction was reflected in the patterns among each side's soldiers as well. It's true that Southern soldiers from slave-owning families tended to express explicitly pro-slavery sentiments more than did soldiers from non-slave-owning families. However, that does not mean that non-slave-holding soldiers never explicitly mentioned defense of slavery as part of their motivation, because many, in fact, actually did, because they were, of course, indoctrinated into the ideology behind slavery so that they would defend it, even though, of course, it harmed them economically. And while you might find non-slave-owning Southerners occasionally voicing resentment at risking their life on behalf of rich planters, you pretty much never find non-slave-owning Southerners expressing any outright hostility to slavery as an institution, nor any real sympathy for the enslaved blacks. James McPherson sums up the defenses of the institution of slavery coming from poor, non-slave-owning whites as that they were fighting for the property which was their own white identity, meaning something that, quote, put them on a plane of civil equality with slaveholders and far above those who did not possess that property, end quote. And again, that property he's talking about there means their white identity, their identity as white people, these poor Southern whites. So the fact was that slavery helped make them feel like they were on a level playing field with the planter class, and there was this big class of black people below them who would always be below them. This sort of belief also later will explain why poor white Southerners were often the most protective of things like segregation in the mid-20th century. By the way, I know I've probably mentioned it before, but I really like the Bob Dylan song, Only a Pawn in Their Game, as a kind of great description, very eloquent, of how poor Southern white people have been manipulated by Southern elites. So, non-slave-owning Confederate soldiers sometimes said things like this, I never want to see the day when a Negro is put on an equality with a white person. There is too many free niggers now to suit me, let alone having four millions. And... You Yanks want us to marry our daughters to the niggers. Now, all that said, it's not like most Southerners, even those from slave-owning families, were constantly harping on and on about slavery. James McPherson says that only about 20% of all the documents he examined from Confederate soldiers voiced any explicit pro-slavery stuff, and that actually a higher percentage of Union documents talked specifically about slavery. But, then again... That doesn't necessarily mean that those sentiments weren't widespread, and McPherson explains this kind of relative lack of Southerners talking explicitly about slavery as follows, quote, Emancipation was a salient issue for Union soldiers because it was controversial. Slavery was less salient for most Confederate soldiers because it was not controversial. They took slavery for granted as one of the Southern rights and institutions for which they fought and did not feel compelled to discuss it. Although only 20% of the soldiers avowed explicit pro-slavery purposes in their diaries and letters, none at all dissented from that view. But even those who owned slaves and fought consciously to defend the institution preferred to discourse upon liberty, rights, and the horrors of subjugation. Quote. Now, I mentioned before that the Union soldiers 
believe it or not, also believed that they were fighting for the ideals of the American Revolution. And they did so by kind of turning a blind eye to the whole notion that it was basically a secession from the British Empire in that case, but instead by focusing on the idea of the resulting establishment of the United States government. And so they see themselves as upholding the American Revolution by trying to keep that thing united. And so Union soldiers said things like this from an Ohio lieutenant, quote, Remember that thousands went forth and poured out their life's blood in the revolution to establish this government, and twould be a disgrace to the whole American people if she had not noble sons enough who had the spirit of 76 in their hearts, end quote. A lot of Union soldiers believed that if the United States were split into smaller pieces, this would somehow mean a major threat to the continued existence of any small-r Republican form of government in America whatsoever. Now, this notion to me seems preposterous, and it might to many of you as well, i.e. this notion that if the Confederacy had been allowed to establish itself as a separate country, it would have somehow threatened the remaining United States' ability to maintain a republic as a form of government. That just seems crazy to me. But, of course, just because a belief seems absurd doesn't mean there might not be people who, for one reason or another, including indoctrination since childhood, will passionately cling to it and may even be willing to kill and fight and die for it. Now, Union soldiers who bought into this view said things like this. This is not a war for dollars and cents, nor is it a war for territory, but it is to decide whether we are to be a free people, and if the Union is dissolved, I very much fear that we will not have a Republican form of government very long. And, admit the right of the seceding states to break up the Union at pleasure, and how long will it be before the new confederacies created by the first disruption shall be resolved into still smaller fragments, and the continent become a vast theater of civil war, military license, anarchy, and despotism? Better settle it at whatever cost and settle it forever. End quote. They also bought into the narcissistic-slash-nationalistic views expressed by Lincoln and before him by various people of the kind of Hamilton, Clay, Webster, nationalist school of thought that, you know, the U.S. is the last best hope for all of mankind on planet Earth, and that, you know, without this, there's no such thing as small-r Republican government. And so, you know, the U.S. government had to endure and had to only ever expand territorially, certainly could never control in size, no matter what. And this must be at any cost. Only expand, never contract. Because if it ever contracted, if it ever fragmented into multiple smaller countries, it would somehow mean the end of all freedom on Earth. Again, to me, that's a very blindered, preposterous, arrogant, narcissistic, ahistorical point of view. But it's one that many Northerners have been indoctrinated into by their schools, by their press, by their parents, by their politicians. Soldiers said things like this, written by an Ohio private, quote, For the great principles of liberty and self-government are at stake. For should we fail, the onward march of liberty in the old world will be retarded by at least a century, and monarchs, kings, and aristocrats will be more powerful against their subjects than ever, end quote. Yeah, support my cause or you'll set liberty back X number of years. Now, 
That's preposterous to anyone, I think at least, who's rational, but to a properly indoctrinated American narcissist slash nationalist, and I think neocons today kind of fit this bill as well, it's, in in their eyes, this is all just self-evidently, obviously, dogmatically true. And think about it, if you really believe all that stuff, if you really think like the fate of mankind hangs on this, what won't you be willing to endorse in terms of extreme measures in pursuit of victory against the failure of liberty on planet Earth? Again, this gets us into the questions about means and ends that are often addressed by Harry Stout in the excellent book Upon the Altar of the Nation. Now, it's worth pointing out that for much of the war, the liberty that the Union soldiers spoke of as their motivation was definitely not, in most cases, again, with the exception of a small number of genuine abolitionist soldiers, meant to include the freeing of the slaves. However, by about 1864, if not a little bit earlier, most Northern soldiers seem to have come around one way or another to the conclusion that abolition, that emancipation, should be a war aim. Now, this is kind of complicated. Don't misunderstand. That doesn't mean that all of the Union soldiers by that time were all kind of really committed to abolition as an inherently just and positive thing for kind of its own sake. And for sure, most Northerners were not at all into the idea of equality of rights for blacks, even if they were all set free. Rather, the way most Union soldiers kind of worked abolition into their understandings of what they were fighting for was that, first and foremost, most still said that preserving the Union was their main war aim above all else. But many had come to the conclusion through one kind of path or another, that it was the South's peculiar institution that at the end of the day was the root cause of the South's distinctiveness, kind of culturally, politically, and economically. And thus, slavery was the root cause of why the South had wanted to leave the United States in the first place. Which, by the way, isn't too far from what what many Southern leaders had actually been saying since 1860, if not a bit earlier. So, In other words, Union soldiers had largely, from what we can tell, decided by 1864, and some of them a bit earlier, that restoring and or preserving the Union wouldn't be possible or successful if slavery, which, again, they'd come to discover was the root cause of secessionitis, were not eliminated. Presumably, by this train of thought, if they believed that slavery was not if they had you know, roughly the same train of thought, and yet they had not come to the conclusion that slavery was the root cause of secessionist feeling, they would presumably have been neutral, or even perhaps opposed to abolition. And the actions and statements of many Union leaders, commanders, and common soldiers during the first two years of the war support this. Many expressed sentiments that were either just neutral on the whole concept of emancipation during the first couple years of the war, or in some cases, like most famously George McClellan, outright hostile to it. So Union soldiers increasingly started saying things during the last year or at most two of the war, like, quote, we are now fighting to destroy the cause of these dangerous diseases, which is slavery and the slave power, end quote. And, quote, the war will never end until we end slavery, end quote. 
along with seeing the end, ending of slavery as a key to ending secessionism, many Union soldiers increasingly described the institution of slavery as the root of a lot of Southern deficiencies that they saw firsthand based on their time in the South. Union soldiers serving in the South said things like, quote, Outside the towns in the South, the people are a century behind the free states, end quote, and, quote, the institution of slavery is as much a curse to the whites as the blacks and kills industry and improvements of every kind. Slavery has deadened all enterprise and prosperity. End quote. By the way, kind of interestingly, Alexis de Tocqueville made some similar observations when he compared the development of slave states and free states in democracy in America decades before this. Other Union soldiers came to support emancipation along pragmatic, sort of tactical and strategic grounds, i.e. that it was an important thing to make moves against slavery in order to weaken the enemy's economy and society and political system. A lot of soldiers seem to have eventually undergone a kind of similarly pragmatic conversion to endorsing the use of black soldiers, basically starting off with well, they can't be proper soldiers because they're inferior people. And over the course of the war, coming around to the idea of, hey, why not let them fight? And if they're going to take some of the carnage and hardship and stop some of the bullets that otherwise would be afflicting white Union soldiers, then let them have at it. So notice, by the way, how one could still potentially be quite racist and also endorse letting black soldiers fight in the Union Army. That said... Not every Union soldier reconciled themselves to emancipation as a significant war aim, and some continued to feel disillusioned by it. They felt like they'd signed up to fight a war against secession and had been hijacked or shanghaied into fighting a war to free black slaves, about whom either they didn't care one way or the other or may have even been actively hostile. But it doesn't seem as if a majority of Union soldiers and officers ever shared these explicitly anti-emancipation feelings, at least from 1863 onward. Of course, as the war went on and more and more soldiers experienced various types of hardship and suffering and seeing friends and comrades killed and maimed and possibly even experiencing yourself getting wounded, all these sorts of horrors that we've been talking about, in that hatred and revenge tended to increase as a clear thing in soldiers' letters and journals as motivation for fighting. Of course, these things always increase the longer a conflict drags on and the dirtier and bloodier it gets. Now, it's not surprising that hatred and revenge seem to be a bigger factor in the minds of Confederate troops, which makes a lot of sense considering the war was mostly happening on their home territory, and in terms of civilians, it was mostly their friends and relatives who were directly suffering much more so than northern civilians, who, you know, had to deal with some wartime economic problems and had to deal with the stress of loved ones being away in harm's way, but didn't have massive Confederate armies leveling their towns, for example. In general, Confederate soldiers who hailed from places that suffered the most from Union invasion and occupation tended to voice the most vehement hatred and revenge sentiments, though there were outliers that perhaps show certain places just having a different personality. So, for example, 
Texans seem to have been very prone towards anger and revenge-seeking type stuff, though that state actually didn't directly experience too much direct destruction during the war. But other than the outlier Texans, it seems like most of the other really kind of angry hater types tended to come mostly from the Upper South and the border states, which kind of makes more sense because those are the areas that bore most of the brunt of the fighting and the occupation for most of the war. And as evidence of this, a soldier from Virginia wrote after the Battle of Fredericksburg in his diary that he, quote, enjoyed the sight of hundreds of dead Yankees, saw much of the work I had done in the way of severed limbs, decapitated bodies, and mutilated remains of all kinds, doing my soul good, end quote. One finds those sorts of statements also in the writings of Union soldiers, though not as frequently. But of course, war, by definition, requires a certain amount of dehumanization and decivilization to get going. And then once the meat grinder is well-primed and humming along, the horrors that happen in war will themselves tend to have a further corrosive effect on civilized norms. And the long-term legacy to the veterans themselves and their families and their communities and society at large of all this hell that I've been talking about in this episode, what does it do to you if you, if you go through all of this and you survive? How are you as a husband, as a father, as a neighbor, as a citizen, as a member of society, if those are the demons you're now deal, dealing with? That's all going to be pretty bad as well, but... That's another story for another time. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He has trampled out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He has loosed the faithful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on.
Thank you for listening to the Dangerous History Podcast. Check out the website, profcj.org, or you can just put in dangerousherypodcast.com to get the show notes for this and every other Dangerous History Podcast episode. While you're there, you can email subscribe to the site over in the right-hand side, and if you put in your email address there and subscribe, you won't get any spam or anything like that from me, no junk email. You'll simply get an email notification every time something new is posted at my website. You can follow me and the show on Facebook and Twitter as well, and you can subscribe to the podcast in iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, however you prefer to consume your podcasts. If you enjoy and appreciate this show, there are many different ways you can help me keep this show going, growing, and constantly improving. One easy way is simply to spread the word about the Dangerous History Podcast to those you think might appreciate it who don't already know about it. And you can also help the show out by leaving ratings or reviews in venues such as iTunes, which helps the podcast get ranked more highly. If you would like to help out the show financially, there are many ways to do so. And you'll find them at profcj.org slash donate. And one of the best, most helpful is to sign up to support the show via Patreon at patreon.com slash profcj. And if you pledge a contribution of at least $5 per month or more, you'll have access to bonus episodes that I publish in Patreon available nowhere else, as well as the ability to join the Dangerous History Podcast Scholar Warriors private Facebook group. You can also make one-time or recurring donations via PayPal, and you can donate via Bitcoin as well. And of course, if you buy things from any of my Amazon affiliate links or my Books affiliate links, go through those links, then do your shopping as normal, and the Dangerous History Podcast will get a small commission at no additional cost to you. This has been another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast, helping you learn the past so you can understand the present and prepare for the future.